Hello and welcome back to the Game Pet. This is episode 87 and finally we are getting round to reviewing last year. That's 2016, Ronan. Indeed we are. Hello, Sean. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us. We have traditionally done our end of year review shows around January time and had a look back at the year previous, but we felt that it was very hard to get enough games played from that year to have an overall view of it and give you very informed opinions. So we thought we'd push it back to the middle of the year and have sort of a look back. And we're getting into award seasons. We've had a Kindish Builders Yara awarded already, Sean. You're suitably excited about that very exciting our good friends at brain games uh won it with ice cool it's a game that we really enjoyed indeed well done everyone at brain games and we could not review a year as exciting as 2016 all alone sean it wouldn't be possible no we've we've brought the man pretty in <laughs> with a face made for radio Adam, <laughs> hello. thank you for joining us hello ronan and sean and welcome listening world <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah, very small bits. Uh, you're very welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here again. What was the last episode you were on? Uh, I think it's two years ago. It's a good long while. It was maybe the review of 2014, probably. Oh, crikey, yeah. that is a while ago. It is a while. It's two and a half years ago. Have you not been in any of the LobsterCon episodes in between? Oh, no, I have. You're right. Uh, I was in a couple of those as well. Okay, sweet, cool. But, but not this time because we decided to do it alone because. Well, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> We're looking forward to your unique insight on 2016, Adam. It's been an interesting year for me, gaming-wise. First time I've been to Essen for a, a good few years was so I was, I was there in 2016. So I thought, oh great, I'll have loads to say about about games from 2016. But there's so much mess, and I didn't play that many of of the things that came out this year. Well, I'm really glad we've drafted you in as an expert. Yeah, I, I don't know that I was the best pick, but we'll see. Yeah, Adam, Adam, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed with your list because I was expecting sort of like a lot of really weird, obscure games that only you could bring to the fold. But it's, I've heard of most of them. I'm disappointed. I, I, I hope so. Chucked in at least a couple of those. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you definitely threw in at least a couple. <laughs> Everyone look forward to Adam's first game, because I certainly am. Okay, so we are going to be going through some categories for you, and we'll look about 2016. We'll kick off on a low with our top three disappointments. So that's where we're going to start off with going on to best family game. Then we're going to talk about a crowdfunded game that we've backed and are most excited for. We'll chat about maybe how crowdfunding has affected the industry around there. Then we're going best presented game, then best expansion, best out of the dust to us we haven't played in a long time then our top three are new to us in 2016 but not published in 2016 and then each of us is going to give you our top five games published in 2016 but each of these is going to be very brief we hope not to keep you here for longer than eight or maybe nine hours <laughs> adam laughs nervously <laughs> i gotta to work tomorrow so. i've got to go to glastonbury tomorrow <laughs> yeah Anyway, yeah, yourself, get out of here. Before we kick into our most disappointing games of 2016, the Game Pit is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go to the network and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, we're on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes.
So we're going to start on a low and build to a crescendo of amazing. And the first category we're all going to give you this time is our top three most disappointing games of the year. Just to clarify, doesn't mean the very worst games we played because sometimes you expect a game to be terrible and it is and you forget about it and throw away. But it's when you get your hopes up even slightly and they get crushed. That's when I think it can be most painful and kicking us off. It's only polite to let our guests go first. Adam, your number three most disappointing game of 2016. So uh, my number three, I, I thought I'd be awkward to start. So this may be a little controversial because it's a game I haven't actually played. Um, God. It's, it's a game that I, I picked up at Essen um, and I was, I was kind of super excited about it. Sight unseen. It was the this year's winner, 2016's winner, of the, and I'm going to pronounce this horribly, Osterreichischen Spielautoren Wettbewerb. A, uh, um, Austrian... That's easy for me to say. <laughs> it's easy for me to say, but probably not to say right. Okay. Austrian game design competition that was previously won by Port Royal, a game which I really like. So I thought, well, clearly they've got good taste, they've got some good picks. So without uh, really knowing anything about it, I went straight to their store, bought the game that, that won this year, uh, which was Potions Brew by Andreas Pryor, uh, and it is published by the Osterreichische Spiel Museum. Uh, so kind so of got did, it they, did they award their own game or prize? The Spiel Museum is a, a museum of gaming in Austria. Um, and they said so essentially, this game published is the best game this year. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, the, the prize is that they publish it. Okay, all right. Okay, sorry. I'll stop so interrupting it's, you. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of open submissions, I think, and, and then the, the winner gets gets published by the museum and gets released at Essen. So I, I kind of got it home and quite excitedly went online to find the rules for it because there were no English rules in the box. And in doing so, kind of stumbled across a few comments on BoardGameGeek that were far from positive. I kind of thought, okay, well, you know, people have their opinions, maybe I'll, I'll and, and read the rules and just thought, no, that's there's, there's not a game there at all. Essentially, it's a, a set collection game where you're, you're looking to meet certain criteria, you're looking to collect recipes for a, a witch's potion. The basic action of the game is you draw two cards and you choose one to keep. But then once cards have started being played on the table, the cards that are, are kind of uppermost on people's piles change the rules. And mostly what they do is they take away even that choice. And they say you just draw blind or somebody else chooses for you. And, and so it's rated a 3.6 on a geek. And, and, you know, the majority of comments, there's, there's one that just says, we stopped playing this a third of the way through when we figured we'd seen all of the game. Because it also apparently goes on for a really long time. I haven't played it, so perhaps people who have, uh, have enjoyed it, but it was a disappointment because I had high hopes of a game that won that prize and then discovered not much of a game there. Okay, so most of my questions for you, Adam, were, were based on you actually playing it, so they're in the bin. Um <laughs> It, it does. I did have a quick look through the rules, and it is a very, very simple rule set. There's not much to them at all. And I was kind of thinking that, like, it doesn't really show you a structure of a game. The rule book isn't, isn't brilliant. And I was hoping that maybe the depth and enjoyment was going to come through in this sort of clever gameplay. But now you're saying that people are saying that that's not there. And as you said, there's no game at all. So, yeah, it's a strange yeah. one to have won a competition. That's the thing. It, it's it's novel. There's probably a good reason for that. So it's still in my collection. I'm not I'm not much of a, a trader. I'm usually too lazy. So it's still there on the shelf. Maybe at some point I'll get it out and, and have a game. This has at least got me thinking about it again. And I, I kind of went through and I reread the rules. 
but I'm not super excited to, and I think I would struggle to find anyone to play it against. I did a little bit of analysis of the Board Game Geek comments for Potions Brew, and I saw what words were used most often, and the top four were fiddly, boring, random, and long. That's not yeah. good. <laughs> and I think it was summarised best by Sven Stratman on there, who said, this is the worst game ever. Yeah. So all of that, <laughs> all of that, I saw, you know, kind of two days after having excitedly bought it. Oh, Motion's Brew, let's go for that. Oh, no. <laughs> so I want to thank Adam for making sure that I never, ever waste my time attempting to play this game. No, I really wouldn't recommend it. Although, hey, like I say, I've got a copy, so maybe I'll, I'll bring it over next time we game in. <laughs> You're not doing your trade hopes very well. <laughs> right, okay, so we're going to move on now, and Ronan, I'm sorry. You I'm, will be. I'm, I'm genuinely sorry about this one. It's Automobiles from AEG, designed by David Short. Now, this is a game where we actually had a discussion. <laughs> I think it's a cube drafting game. The boys, the boys differ. But I'm going to describe it as a cube drafting game where you're putting cubes into a bag, you're drawing them out, and you're basically propelling a car around a track, and you're trying to win. Now, the reason I'm saying sorry to Ronan, because Ronan is a big fan of this game. He really likes it, and... He introduced it to me. He was really excited about it. I was really excited because he was really excited. And we tend to fall on the on a similar path with games. Sometimes we have our big disagreements. This being one, it, I just found it, it was repetitive. I didn't really get the theme. All I felt like it, I was I was getting coloured cubes, putting them in a bag. If I was lucky enough to draw out the right ones, then I would be in a good position. If I wasn't, then I wouldn't be. And I felt it was overly long. I felt it did outstay its welcome. And I really wanted to like this one. It's not a horrible game. I think the build-up that Ronan gave for it to me made me very disappointed. Well, sure. I think the most obvious thing to say is that you're just plain and simple wrong about this game. (laughs) You might be a little bit of an imbecile again. That's two shows in a row. How did you manage it? It's just a talent. I thought to myself, what's Sean not going to like about the game in order to prepare some sort of clever counter-argument? I thought, I can think of nothing. So I said to myself, I'll wait until he's made a point. Now, one of the points you said there that leapt into my mind was, you said length of the race. It's something I think about the game as well, is that it's possible to play a three lap, that's the quick race, and extend it as far as seven laps. And to me, when you extend it as far as seven laps, it really doesn't work. And it's towards the shorter number of lap count that the game is at its best. Is it just that you played races that were too long? I played um, races that... I did play the three the three lap race. That was my initial game. And so I that was can't on the, have gone too long, can it? It didn't go um, massively long, but for the amount of enjoyment I was having... And we did have a runaway leader in that game, and sort of from round and a half in, a lap and a half in, no matter what I did, I couldn't catch that person. So I was bored with it. So maybe that's why the initial game went wrong. Then we played a longer game, and I really did outstay the welcome then. By the third lap, I was like, okay, right, this this game is just the same thing, repeating over and over and over again. And... It just wasn't hold, holding my attention. Now, I'm not. I'm making it sound like I absolutely detested it. I didn't. But the reason it's on this list is because you love it so much, Ronan. And I wanted. It sounds like you're it. just trying to make me feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> and you ruined this game for me, Ronan. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk about a game later where I say there's the perfect amount of engine building to engine running, and then the game finishes. And that's I think the problem with automobiles sometimes is the engine building and getting your bag right 
and then the engine running then has to be relatively short because most of the enjoyment is in building that engine rather than running it. And using engine in automobiles, I, I'm not missing out that that's really clever, by the way. <laughs> well done. <laughs> pat, pat yourself on the back. Having said that, Ronan, I have seen you play it subsequently um, when I've not been involved because I refuse to. But I've seen you sort of crack the whip a little bit and get people moving a little bit quicker and like when, they, when they're just faffing around over one little move, you're like, no, no, just do it, do it. And that seemed to be more enjoyable. Could you make me sound any worse in this section, by the way? Adam, <laughs> come in. Hopefully you won't character assassinate me. Well, I think I, I fall between the two of you here. I quite like it. It's okay. Deck building through cubes, it was one of the early ones that did that. I think it implements it really well. The variable setup works well. I think it is the timing issue. And so I've played this maybe three times now, mostly with you, Ronan. Mm-hmm. And, and so you kind of have this rule where you say, well in order for it not to drag and in order for there not to be way too much downtime for it to be enjoyable, you do your moves on the track and then all of your buying and your choosing of cubes, you do while other people take their moves. And I agree that that's the only way for the pacing to work, but that just makes me feel then that I'm quite disconnected from what everyone else is doing. And when I'm taking my cubes, I should be looking at what other people are taking and how other people are playing their game in order to, to not be kind of maybe competing on certain things. And I, I felt that in order to play it in a reasonable time, you don't get to fully engage with it. So it's something I'm always happy to play because at, at that pace, it's only a couple of hours, but it's not one of my favourites. So I didn't not make it look bad there. I, I love you, Adam. I want, that's, <laughs> that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> You just come on, come more often, prompt me with these things. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, well, fine, fair enough. Both of you have said to me, though, Sean, you said it last time we talked about automobiles, and Adam, you said it here, that you thought it was a good idea to crack the whip, but actually, that missing out on what the other players were doing was affecting your enjoyment of the game. So maybe that's something I need to have another think about. And, and is it worth losing that little bit of downtime? in order to keep people engaged and just keep it to a shorter lap time until everyone's used to the powers and stuff like that. I think it's one of the games I was really excited about. So I wanted to try all different powers and have to try five lap races, seven lap races and try everything we could possibly do with it before maybe everyone I was playing with was completely comfortable with playing that quickly. So maybe there's a lesson in that for me. Yeah, maybe it's just that the, the shorter laps is the sweet spot and then it, it doesn't drag too much. Yeah. But what I'm hearing is you're a tyrant and you ruin games. That's what we're saying. <laughs> Okay, that's a fair call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan, what, what what is your number three most disappointing? Now, my number three, I had a little wobble about putting in or not. It's Star Trek Ascendancy from Gale Force 9, in which you're playing three players at the moment with more races coming, Federation, Klingon, and Romulans, and you're looking to explore your parts of the galaxy. You just start with a home planet, and then as you explore, you build up a across the table the map of the galaxy by adding planets and adding lanes that travel between the planets planets have different numbers of lanes depending upon well just which planet is you pull from a stack there are event cards that happen when you go exploring there's individual tech trees and i was very excited because of the theme because of the track record of gale force 9 the whole scope of it and the fact that you could build your own galaxy and have some control i've only played one full game of it and that's why i was a bit because in terms of excitement to reward i got with this one game it would definitely be in here but the fact it's only been one game is why i was hesitant because how much can you judge it the problems i had with it really were the game was just too slow to get going 
So you started away from each other and then there wasn't anything very exciting to do. So I've had people complain there's random aspects at the beginning there. To me, I think there's not that many random aspects. It's just it feels like the random is more important because it's slow and there's nothing else going on and you're just building yourself up. So the only thing to concentrate on the game is, oh, I wonder what random card I'm going to get. I don't think they have a really huge effect on the game, though. The second thing is, I was very excited about the spatial aspect of building up your part of the galaxy. And that bit just really, really fell flat for me. And it was incredibly easy for players to manipulate in an unrealistic and unnatural way the way in which the galaxy built up to create channels and lanes and dead ends and block certain people off. So if you moved a fleet out with some power, people would just explore, explore, explore. And then... Until a planet has got two lanes attached to it, it's completely, it can move through the arc of the first lane that's on it. And people can just swing planets round, I mean, in almost you know, two foot arcs from one side to the other when they explored off that planet. So that you can start moving towards it and they go, oh, no, no, it's now two feet away. And you can create these cul-de-sacs where people, they're within an inch of you or less than that on the board. But they cannot get to you without going through the whole galaxy and getting around and going through the other player to get to. Uh, it just got very frustrating. I really think that that rule should have been tidied up when planets are within certain distance of each other. Lanes should have just been automatically opened up. Stop the cul-de-sacking and stop the artificial feeling of that creating the map. Those are the two main things that let me down with Star Trek Ascendancy. Sean, you played it with me. I did. I played in that game, and I too I came very close to adding it to mine, but I wobbled in the in a different direction. Ronan, always a dangerous thing. Good God, that always, could cause problems. <laughs> always a dangerous thing when we wobble. But I I plumped for the other side. I thought he's probably just a little bit unfair, but I concur with pretty much every word you just said there. The third player was playing the Federation and it just seemed very easy for the Federation to manipulate those planets. I think we had one route to get to the Federation and you would have to come through my home planet to do that. So that's obviously the Federation setting us up for a war and they just sit there and look pretty and win the game. It, it was annoying, it was irritating and also the ratio of building yourself up to actually getting involved in some action just felt way off to me. And engine building to engine running, my friend. There you go. The ratio I think was off. The only thing is that um, when you discover a lane from a planet, it's, it's random what length it's going to be. So there's certain times when you're looking to link two planets and like a three-length lane will do it perfectly for you and you're older five. And suddenly you're pointing this lane out to the middle of nowhere. And you're like, oh, you know, just a rule that you go, okay, this is within three, it's a three lane. Now they're connected. Yeah. Mm. Adam, have you tried yeah, this? Yeah, I haven't. Um, I've been offered a game a couple of times, and in all honesty, there was there was almost nothing about it that appealed. A very long, very heavily thematic, big, sprawling, random 4X game. There was no reason that I was ever going to play it. The only thing that sounded interesting to me was that exploration, was the way that the lanes worked, that you could see where things could potentially be connected, but until you explored and, and kind of resolved those lanes, you just had these kind of collapsing potentials. That sounded somewhat interesting. So if that doesn't work, then that, there is nothing here for me at all. It, it really does feel like a house rule situation. I think if I get it out again, I think I will get it out again, I'm going to stick that in place where if that goes within a certain distance of there, 
when you explore from one of them, it's, that's the automatic connection. It has to go there. But there you go. House, house ruling games already. Sean, you've got a number two most disappointing game after my Star Trek attendance. Dismay. Do I do? It's Four Gods from Asmodee and designed by Christoph Bullinger. It's basically you're you're building a map, you're building a world, you're placing tiles to do that. You're aligning yourself with one of the four gods, and you are simultaneously drawing tiles out of the bag to build that world. And it's all real time going on, and it's very frantic. So, what drew it to me in the first place? It was very much in my essence sort of wish list. I had a look at it. the The artwork really drew me in. I love a tile layer. I love a world builder. I thought that aligning yourself, not right at the beginning to the gods, but when, when it was time to do so, and when you thought it was best to do, I thought that was a really interesting mechanic. And then I played it at a LobsterCon uh, last year. And yeah, yeah, that real-time aspect was the worst real-time aspect I've ever played because you're basically sharing a bag of tiles. That's saying something for a man who hates real tiles. Oh, yeah, indeed, indeed. I was willing to forgive that aspect of it because everything else sounded so cool. But, yeah, diving into the same bag, you're building up, you you have no interest what other people are doing apart from when you're choosing your god and then you're looking to see which is going to be the most profitable one. And that can just change in a heartbeat. I just found it too frantic, too chaotic, and just massively disappointing. And I, I hated almost every second of it. Okay, so Four Gods for me, it worked as a game. So it's not on this list, but it wasn't that fun. And my biggest problem with it is that it played into the hands of the quickest player because the other players are then forced to rush to try and keep up with them. And almost every time you're playing a tile, you're creating opportunities for other people. So whoever is quickest or most used to it, most competent, whatever, it's just... Firstly, playing quicker, which forces everyone else's hand, and then able to leap in to what's happening with the map because it's all shared. And so it didn't feel particularly fun to me. It just always felt quite stressful. There was no payoff to the effort I was putting in. In certain real-time games that I really like, you do real-time and you have a bit of a pause and see what's going on. Then do real-time, have a pause and see what's going on. Or they're very quick. And Four Gods does neither of those. It's just constant, constant, frantic, 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 get to the end. I'm kind of glad that's over. I did not love Four Gods. Of everything on the list, this was, I think, maybe the only one I hadn't heard of at all. And the general description of, of how it played and the rules, the, the way that you place the tiles and creating opportunities and that, that interesting notion where, where you say, I don't think that there's a tile that can fit in here so I can go in here and score points. But then later on, if there is, so it's kind of a little push your luck thing. All of that sounds really interesting. Why would you make that a real-time game? I, it just sounds like it would be a, a nice, gentle tile laying, and instead it's just a kind of mess. Yeah, I'm I'm with Sean on not being a fan of a real-time game at all. I think yeah. there's a turn-based option for it, right, Sean? I think there, yeah, I think there's an alternate rule. I think if I ever did go back to it, if I tried that, I think that might actually completely flip the game for me into something that I would really enjoy, because everything Adam just said... The game is really interesting in its mechanisms, apart from that one sort of elephant in the room. Cool. Okay. So I'm going to move on to another game that we did mention throughout the year, so you'll know that we didn't love it. We played it at the last UK Games Expo. That'll be 2016, over a year ago now. It's Colony from Bezier Games. 
You're building a colony by assigning dice to a tableau of cards, a tableau of cards which you are constantly increasing, and the cards require a different number of dice to be assigned to them. When you assign them, you activate different powers, get more dice, can do this, do that, gather some resources. Depending on what number is on the top of the dice, it, that suggests there are a particular resource. It never really matters, just the number is what counts. You draft as well the dice, so each turn you take some and, and the, the last player is going to have a slightly worse choice for them. The whole thing, it's got great artwork. I like a dice assignment and manipulation game. However, this was dull. It was unthematic. It was dodgy. It didn't move at all. It was just slowly, slowly grinding away. You might work hard to get a card and then not roll things you needed for that card for another four rounds. Do not even get any reward for your efforts? And there weren't really enough different options for clever play. So Colony fell very flat for me. Yeah, this was on my radar when it was, was kind of first on the Geek. There was some information about it. And it really sounded like it was absolutely my kind of thing. I love the, the sort of dice manipulation and, and the dice kind of allocation and using them as resources seemed like an interesting take on that. So I was quite excited and then... The Games Expo rolled around and, and Essen and people started playing it and I didn't hear a single good thing about it. So um, it very quickly dropped off of my radar. I've, I've not tried it, but I've, I've really heard the same from everyone that it was just a disappointment, really. Yeah, I was in the game myself and Natalie and Ronan played it at the Expo and I didn't hate it as much as the other two, but I could certainly see where they were coming from. You just felt like you had no agency in things at all it was it was t- total luck of the dice it was hardly any manipulation unless you happen to get a certain card i just yeah i got bored very quickly this one. well that's colony that's a general almost a universal meh i feel to that one adam hit us up with another bit of disappointment we're getting very yeah. flat here aren't we we're going to get to good games eventually <laughs> now this one i am i am really sad that this you one must be is on my list. You I, must I be genuinely crying. am. So this is uh, Bios Genesis by uh, Phil Eklund, released by Sierra Madre Games. As you will hear later on, I am a massive fanboy of, of Eklund and of everything Sierra Madre does. I, I liked High Frontier. I absolutely love the PAX games and kind of kept buying all of their games. So when Greenland came out, some people who'd like the PAX games with me said, oh, I'm not so sure about this. And the problem that a lot of people had with that was that it's a very complicated game to learn. It's really, really rules-heavy and has lots of exceptions and lots of specific things in order to, to kind of get in that historical veracity. But then the actual outcome of the game is decided just by this really kind of punishing dice mechanism. And I said, no, I still like it. It's still enjoyable. And I have Greenland. I've played that quite a lot. Love it. Neanderthal was, was kind of okay. And then Bios Genesis is... It's similar to those mechanically. So the notion is that there's a kind of tableau of, of cards onto which you're placing your markers to say, this is somewhere that I'm going to take a chance on being able to do something. In this case, uh, the chance you're taking is that you are trying to create basic multicellular life. As, as the name suggests, it's about the beginnings of, of life on Earth. And so you're placing your markers and then rolling a whole bunch of dice to see what happens. And... I wanted to like it. I really did. I've played it, I think, four times in all. And I don't think we ever actually got every single rule right in all of those games. It's now way beyond what Greenland or Neanderthal did. It's so complex. 
it's so incredibly difficult to keep everything in mind, to remember all of the exceptions and the specific ways that things work and things interact. And then the outcome is just based upon a whole bunch of very punishing dice rolling. So this was finally the, the line in the sand for me where I was like, I, I love you, Phil, but not this one. This is a step too far. Have you seen any of the Scientology documentaries that have been floating around for the last few years with Louis Theroux and different other people? Uh, no, I don't think I ever have. Uh, no, I don't think I have. See, in almost all the stories of people going clear, which is the name of one of the documentaries, by the way, they start talking about moments where bitch their faith started to crumble and they started to see behind the facade to realise there was something rotten at the core of that which they had dedicated their life to. No, no. No, you, as you will see when we get on to uh, the, the top five games of the year, I am still very much uh, a member of the Sierra Madre cult. And, no, and this is not, has, you, this no, has no, not no, broken see, my faith. See, also, they start with... I, I just wasn't sure about what they were doing financially... I feel like those are the dice assignment games. They're like the first thing about Scientology you realise, well, that's not quite right. They shouldn't be beating people like that. <laughs> and then once that starts to crumble, perhaps you'll move on further and, and deeper into the Thetans. And you'll realise that perhaps it's all just a house of cards. I'll, no, I'll, I'm going to let you dwell on that thought. <laughs> his dice assignment games are just the most heinous of his lies. I still, I still love Greenland. Um, I, I won't hear anything said against it. <laughs> exactly. See, I think, <laughs> think I, about what you're saying there. I think I'm too thick to join the Sierra Madre cult. <laughs> I own Greenland. I've picked it up X amount of times. Every time I do pick it up, there's a new set of rules out. So it's just a daunting and it's a barrier to entry for that. Now, if you're saying that this one is even more complex, I don't even want to know. I love the theming of the games. They're always really interesting. Look, just go and write a book. But if you're going to make <laughs> games that convoluted and complicated, then I don't know. You need to it's take like a step back. It's like writing a thesis. It's like writing a thesis and then rolling a dice to see what grade you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. Uh, one thing I should say in defense of Bios Genesis is that for those who don't like the Sierra Madre art and graphic design style, which I do, it is much cleaner. The art is absolutely gorgeous. It looks fantastic, but it's just not. You, you, you like the art style. <laughs> I wow, do. Some people are beyond help. Okay. <laughs> because I like art that's, that's not like every other game. I know, I've seen some of your answers coming up. <laughs> okay, moving on from Phil Eklund Games for now. My number one most disappointing game of the year was Cry Havoc from Portal Games. This is a minis on the board fighty game in which up to four races, which are asymmetrical, are fighting over a planet. The different races are trying to achieve different things in order to win. So there are like the Trogs, who are the native race. They're trying to defend the planet. You've got the Mystics who want to collect these crystals, which are the raw materials on the planet, and they can do funky things with their factories. You've also got robots and marines down there, and they're more after fighting and taking over land and fighting against the Trogs and wiping them out. To me, for each race, your story was written for you, and you are far too limited in your choices. Once the races got established, it was all too static. You couldn't make any real varied choices. Any move you made would almost always punish one other player and therefore benefit the other two. Now, I know that's true in a lot of area fighting control e-games. However, in this one, I thought it was a particular issue. 
And the whole thing just felt very, very frustrating because to me it was, here's your script for your race. How closely the other players allow you to follow your script will dictate how well you do in this game. That was cry havoc for me. Yeah, this is another one that I wasn't super familiar with. So I, I kind of reminded myself by having a look on, on Board Game Geek today. And so I saw kind of card-driven, asymmetric in the script. So I thought, oh, you know, this is all, all sounding interesting. And then looked at a picture, and it's, it's just a big old box full of toys, isn't it? It's, I, I don't Which see is why almost you, always I, a good thing, right? <laughs> Which almost always a good thing. Wait, I have, John, John? I have rarely found almost? <laughs> to be a harbinger <laughs> of a good game. <laughs> Wow, that that got really judgy, Mr. <laughs> I like the artwork in Greenland. <laughs> <laughs> so Cryovac was one that was very definitely on the radar, and then reports started coming back. Now, some people absolutely love it, but it's one of those things that Portal seem to be doing at the moment. They're concentrating on the storylines of games, because it's kind of their thing. They bring story into their games. But it sounds to me, from what Roland said and other people, they've kind of crowbarred too much story and you are on rail. I, it's something I was excited about. I'm not excited about now. I haven't played it, and I'm not that fussed if I don't. Yeah, it was a shame. Portal have fired a few misses for me recently, although I have just traded for 51st State Master set, and I'm hoping that's going to bring me back into the Portal game. Didn't football. you get rid of the original one without playing it? No. Hmm. No. Move on. Adam? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on to my number one. Yes, please. We were all waiting for this. Uh, so, my, my number one most disappointing... Grab, grab some popcorn, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> number one biggest disappointment was Seafall. Seafall... Uh, are you going to give it its full title, or are we going to say family-friendly? What's that? Fracking. Fracking Seafall. <laughs> Uh, yeah, by, as I'm sure everybody is aware, uh, Rob Davio, and published by Iron Wall Games, among others. So, Seafall is a, a legacy game. It's unlike a, a lot of previous legacy games. It's not based on an existing game. It is a, a novel game uh, about trading and exploring in a sort of fictional, I don't know, roughly 18th century world. The reason this is such a disappointment is that I was really excited about C4. I was really, really looking forward to it from the very first time that it was mentioned, which is some years ago now. It has been in development for an awful long time. I played some of Risk Legacy and loved the idea, but didn't love Risk. I thought, you know, it's not necessarily a game I would, I would play otherwise. It was enjoyable, but it didn't hook me in enough to, to keep me coming back and actually get through a full campaign. Similarly, Pandemic Legacy, I'm just not a fan of co-ops. There was really no way that, that was ever going to be of interest to me. So I was honestly a bit jealous of all those people who were having a loads and loads of fun with Pandemic Legacy. And I just thought, well, it's, it's not for me. It's never going to be for me. But Seafall's coming. Seafall's going to be great. That's going to be absolutely for me. <laughs> uh, a friend picked up a copy and was looking for people to play. So, yes, absolutely. I'm on that. I, I will definitely be there through the whole campaign. All 70,000 games or however many it seems to be still stretching ahead of me. We have played nine. And they're a really nice group that I play it with. I'm happy to get together with them you know, every couple of weeks and, and kind of slog our way through this. Because we've started, and we might as well finish. But honestly, it's just not fun. It's not enjoyable. And if you had sat me down at kind of game five, and you said, here's the rules of the game, 
here's what you do. Play it for, you know, the 90 minutes it takes. Would you like to play another 15 games of this? The answer is absolutely not. Basically, there are two strategies you can take. You can fit out your ships to be good at exploring and, and raiding, and you can whiz out and you can go and do kind of plot-based stuff. If you explore, you roll a whole bunch of dice, and if you, you get the results you're looking for, you advance the plot, you explore some new things, you, you discover new things about the game, and you get some random rewards for it, which might be enough to, to push you up and, and to, to win the game. Or it might be that players who've taken the other strategy, which is a very Euro-y, very bitty kind of move and trade and gradually improve and gradually kind of get more money and, and build up, those are the two avenues you can take. And essentially, if you've gone all explory and had some bad luck, then the people who are doing the steady slog will probably win. But on the other hand, if you're doing the steady slog and somebody goes exploring and gets lucky, then you've spent 90 minutes of playing a very boring game, just moving your ship out to an island and back to your port and out again. And then it just ends at a point that you have no control over. It is, as a game, simply not enjoyable. The, the kind of revelation, the development of the game is fine, and it's kind of interesting. There's a bit of story there, but it's not enough to make it worthwhile. So that is C4. Well, yeah, I think the time that this one took to come out, I kind of I think it even harmed it before people started playing it. I think, as you said, Pandemic Legacy kind of stole its thunder a little bit. And it, was there a lot of problems in development? Did they realise that actually one of the, one of the strategies to use in this one is completely tedious and it goes against everything that we're trying to do with the game is with the adventure and the exploration, etc. So the look of the game, it looks awful. Shades of beige. Um, not great. Yeah, no. no, no. It just it turned me off before I even started seeing the reviews. I thought mm, I'm going to wait for this one because I'm not I'm not buying it yet. And yeah, I, it was right not to. I think <laughs> listening to you there. Adam. <laughs> so we know a couple of other people who have started playing it, and after one or two games, very quickly abandoned it. And and one of them every time I say, "Oh, I can't do that. I've got to go and play C4 this evening," and he's like, "Just quit. Just stop playing it." But Somehow, I, I kind of feel like we've got this far, we've got to finish it. But it's he—he he says that when you're not in the room as well. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd let you know. I think we need an intervention for Adam Roland. It's, it's put him in a room, lock him with food and water. For we've provided months. a public counselling session forum for him right here to get some things off his beautiful chest. So, I, I, what's the worst moment you've had so far in C4? When did your spirit really get crushed? That's what I want to hear. Every time that you you spend quite a lot of, of time kind of gradually building up to go and do an explore, I've, I've really kind of kitted things out to do the explore thing. I said, well, it's, it's clearly a merry trash. I'm not going to play it like a Euro because it isn't. And then just chuck a huge fistful of dice. And it's, it's those times when everything's riding on it. And you think, OK, I've been working on this for an hour and a half now. This is the point that is make or break. And either I win or I don't. And... In some of the games, that would be a kind of exciting stand-up moment. But somehow it isn't. It just feels so defeating when you fail, and yet not that triumphal when you succeed. So, yeah, I, I can't think of any one kind of stand-up moment. It's, it's that thing happening over and over again. It sounds amazing. You've definitely sold me on the idea. <laughs> I'm in Seafall Season 2. Coming to a table near you soon. <laughs> <laughs> I think for once I'm, I'm not an outlier on this. So. No, not at all. 
And do you feel a bit better? I do, I do. I, I mean, this isn't the first time I've had this rant, but it's the no, first time no, I've set it's... it down on record. It's rant number one of two for you this uh, this episode, I believe. <laughs> At least, yes. <laughs> okay, right. Last game of the misery before we do get onto the stuff that we've actually enjoyed. My number one disappointment was Inish, designed by Christian Martinez. And- Inish! Inish, sorry. My number one was Inish, designed by Christian Martinez and coming from Matago. Right, this one is themed around you're a Celtic chieftain and it's an area control game where your your clan is trying to take over the board you're using uh, individual cards to to program your moves and set in the line of Cyclades and Kemet and therein is where I fell for the game in uh, last year's Essen Cyclades love it Kemet love it Yes, the box art isn't, isn't great, but I really did like the actual tile art. I thought they looked really nice when they were put together. Card art as well. So I was really, really excited about this one. I pre-ordered it for Essen. It was the most excited I was about a game at Essen. After two games of this, I got rid of it. I think I sold it for £20 just to get it out of my house. It just boiled down to the, the one mechanism that stands out is that person the person that must declare that they're about to win and if they don't do that exactly the right moment everyone piles on them and it just elongates the game and that continues and continues until somebody's had, had two of the three and the people can't pile on them enough to stop them winning the game that just killed it for me a lot of people really like that mechanism I don't. The repetitive nature of the cards that you play. You only have a, a very small hand of cards and the characters that you get that are going to influence your turn. Yes, I've been told that the more you play them, the more you know them and you kind of know them off by heart and you know how to counteract them. But in my initial plays, I was just bored because I've seen the same card over and over and over again. It just didn't hold my interest. The fact that it comes from the legacy of those two games I mentioned before it didn't hold up to them at all. I was really disappointed in this one. Adam? This is yet another of the games that I, I haven't played. It was one of many that I was hoping to try at Essen. I was, I, was, I was quite looking forward to it. It looked like an interesting idea. And visually, it seemed quite well put together, aside from, as you say, that, that box cover. So we were all standing around. There was a group of us at Essen waiting for a table. And I got distracted by something shiny. No idea what. Um, it's all wandered off, and by the time I came back, everybody had already sat down to play, and, and I was just about to be disappointed, and then I just saw the expressions on the faces of those who were playing, and all of them just looked bored and puzzled, and nobody had anything good to say about it. So, yeah, it very, very quickly dropped off of my radar. So, I didn't hate it. I was disappointed in it. It's probably a contender for this list. I'm going to agree with Sean at one point and disagree with the other one. The first disagreement... I like the fact that it's limited cards. I like the card play. I like that I started to understand from the draft which cards I'd seen, which cards I hadn't, and therefore can anticipate where they might be around the table. So that, to me, was actually was starting to grow on me. But I hated the king-making. Absolutely hated it. In that, yes, if Sean's claimed the token and Adam's claimed the token, either of them could win. I was usually left with a choice of stopping one of the two. And literally my decision decided which of those two is going to win the game. Or, Sean's got the token. I know that if I jump in and stop him, I'm going to weaken myself to the point where Rachel steps in, beats me in that area, and she now wins the game. 
So I either stop Sean because he's winning right now and allow Rachel to win, or don't do it and just allow Sean to win from winning position. And that happened in every game of Inish I played. So that was just, I was done with it, mate. Yeah, I I had heard that about the cards. Like people have argued against me before about that. Say no, no, no. Once you understand the cards, you get a much better feel for the what's around you and how to combat. And it's it's very interesting. But I didn't even get to that point. It was just I was so disappointed <laughs> in the game. I just wanted it gone. Uh, but there you go. We have ended the disappointment. Finally, we're going to get onto some good games. Okay, we are now going into more enjoyable territory. Something close to mine and Ronan's hearts is the family game category. But so, not Adam's? What, does he hate kids? What's, what, Adam uh, wasn't allowed in on that? Yeah, I, don't, I, oh, <laughs> I don't think you have children, but okay. <laughs> My apologies to Adam. <laughs> I don't think you're allowed near children. <laughs> <laughs> What's the category, Sean? Best family game, Ronan. Brilliant. Adam, who's not allowed near children? Do you want to start off? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I initially didn't really have anything for this. For me, you know, I, I don't have kids. There's very few occasions where I'd be gaming with kids. So for me, a family game means not a game to. that I can play with my parents, essentially, or like, you know, with friends who are non-gamers. So from that point of view, for me, the, the perfect family game is Codenames. And so in terms of a 2016 release, you're looking at Codenames Pictures. Now, I don't prefer pictures to the original. I like words. I, I like the, the way that Codenames uses words because they kind of inherently have multiple meanings and they really lend themselves to the game. So when I first heard about Codenames pictures, I thought, well, that's not going to work. You're going to lose that whole element. And so what I was impressed by was the way that they did the artwork for Codenames pictures, which I, I should probably say who that's designed by, shouldn't I? That is, I think everyone probably knows. <laughs> two people who don't know that is by uh, Vladishvatl. And released by Czech Games Edition. Do you think the pictures makes for more of a family game than sort of a, a party game, sort of adult? I game? think it makes for a game that is more accessible with a, a wider kind of range of players, perhaps with um, with younger players, with maybe people whose English isn't their first language, you have a kind of smaller vocabulary, or just who have different cultural references. When you're playing the word-based game you need to have those common references. You need to have things that everybody will pick up on. But what Pictures does over that is that they're the different possible references are built into the pictures. They're these slightly surreal pictures where multiple things are combined together. And so it allows you to still have that fun of putting things together and, and tying things together with a single description, but without necessarily having that shared reference or that shared large vocabulary so i think that's definitely where it wins out for younger children for, for kind of more disparate groups i think it it goes to show what a great game codenames is in that the pictures even though all three of us agree that it's not as good as the word game is still good enough to be awarded here by us some sort of an award if you were to call these an award and no one's arguing about it everyone's going yeah yeah it is a good game it, it deserves to be in here i think one of the most important things when I looked at our three choices were is that I think best family game is almost too broad a subject because for Adam, it means playing with his parents. For Sean, it means playing with his four-year-old boy. For me, it's with my 11-year-old and 14-year-old. And for every other person, it's going to be slightly different to them as what a family game is. So I think it's nice to see that we've got a wide range within family game. And this really seems to be just 
lighter game that people who aren't particularly serious about gaming could enjoy playing. Although Sean's, I think, is very much specifically more a kid's game. Oh, absolutely. So my choice is My First Stone Age, signed by Marco Turbner and from Z-Man Games. As Ron said, it's very much something that I tailor towards playing with my four-year-old son. And the kind of stuff we're looking for at the moment is things that he can enjoy and learn from, and we also enjoy playing with him. And I think My First Stone Age just fits into that. You have new things that he's been introduced to within the games, like trading was very interesting in set collection he started to grasp that and they also had the thing like where there was hidden tiles and he had to memorize where the hidden tiles they seen that before but i think just the bring so much into the fold for him that it's interesting for us to watch him as he develops and it's still a decent game and it's it still harkens back to stone age and it still has the same feel as Stone Age, but very, very watered down. So it's, it's the game that we've probably most enjoyed playing with him this year. Or last year, sorry. I've taken right against this game. No. Because <laughs> your four-year-old absolutely rinses me at it. And it's not because I'm not trying. It's not because it's a completely random game. It's a proper game, and he absolutely destroys me. So I think this is an awful choice. Yes, dear. <laughs> um, I obviously haven't played... First Stone Age. So I suppose I just had more of a question than a comment. Was if perhaps you'd just spent four hours playing something really heavy and, and you wanted kind of a, a light alternative, is this a game that you would pull out and play without your son? Is, is it something that you'd play just for a kind of really light filler, or is it really there just uh, as a game for kids? I I think it probably is just a game for kids. It is very light. Like it, the trading is literally go to the trading area, give back one of your items, take one of the other ones, and trying to get hot very very light probably the memory bit is the hardest bit to remember where everything is but i don't see playing with this with adults to be honest yeah i mean i think after my last game of, of Bar's genesis i could have done with something like that as a cool down <laughs> you could have, i could have just beat, taken a club and beaten you over the head with it if that <laughs> okay here's a game you can play as a light filler with all ages and my choice for best family game of 2016 is happy salmon designed by ken gill quentin weir and from north star games everyone gets a deck of identical cards and the aim of the game is to get rid of them by completing the actions on the cards and the actions are as simple as high five switch place with someone or happy salmon with them whereby you're slapping each other's forearms in a dead fish flop, 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 flop kind of a way the trick is that the other person you're doing the action with has to have this, that same card on the top of their deck so we both have to show a high five we high five throw that card away move on to the next action more than likely you and i are no longer in sync and i'm looking for someone else around the table to sync up with and high five and happy salmon switch places and do whatever we need to do first person to get rid of all their cards wins the game it is the dancing eggs for this decade it is hilarious you'd have heard about it and lots of other podcasts if you listen to many gaming podcasts and it's my choice for best family game of 2016 i think this is where me and you sort of diverge the most in our gaming taste run you love a party game where it's just chaos and everything's happening and it's all in happening at the same time and it's just it's funny because you're slapping each other that just sounds like it sounds like chaos to me. I, it makes it makes me come out in a sweat. I don't like it. I don't want it. Please don't. That is yeah, such a release. I'm um, sorry, I'm, sorry, guys. Sorry, it's, it is. Yeah, that is a call from the fun police. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad that I'm not the only one who's going to have to be a curmudgeon about this. So I, I have played Happy Salmon, and indeed, I when we were looking at this, I, I dug out a review uh, that I wrote of it, which was pretty scathing. 
I can see that what it does, it does perfectly well. But for me, it was it was kind of like pits, but more tiring because you had to keep jumping up and moving around the table. It was just kind of too frenetic, too chaotic. I get it as like a an icebreaker or or kind of something to play with kids, but it just it didn't appeal to me as a game. I'm glad that there's no way for radio picking up shaking of head because I'm just <laughs> drowning the both of you out with the white noise of my left to right. Good God. When hey, did the we, child inside you die? We must be right because we're the majority. Yeah. The the whole against world. One. <laughs> I knew this was going to be some kind of a battle. Now I realise where the lines have been drawn. It's fun versus you two. <laughs> Listen, Adam's too beautiful to be wrong. <laughs> So, everyone knows that crowdfunding has shaped this industry over the past five or six years. And one of the funny things we get now is that you pay out however much money for a game one year and you don't receive it until a year, two years, maybe five years later, or maybe you never get it. And I'm sorry if that has ever happened to you. So one of the things we thought we might talk about is one of the crowdfunded games that we have back to last year and we're very excited about and are most looking forward to. So we won't have too much to say about these games, but just kind of an inkling, something in the air, something we're hanging on to, but a game of Christmas when that big parcel arrives at your door. Sean. I have backed something, Ronan, and this is, I think, is the only one that hasn't actually come through yet, and it's probably the one I was most excited about. It's The Walking Dead, No Sanctuary, and the reasons why are, are fairly obvious. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of The Walking Dead. I've been with it since the comic started, and I've watched the TV show Blossom, and this one is, is mainly themed around the TV show. It, it has some very interesting mechanisms, or appears to have. It's got this follow-the-leader mechanism. I think it encourages teamwork. The designers, the Sadler brothers, both very strong designers. And I'm hoping that this one might just capture the feel of the, the TV show and the comic book, etc., or some somewhere in between. I love that each player is going to have an individual player deck, which also works as their health. That works well in different games. And that each of those decks is going to be properly individual with different skills. So you'll feel like the character that you're playing. That I love. That leadership system we talked about in one of our treasure hunts during 2016. I'm definitely a maybe on that. That seems a little bit semi-carpy. I remain to be convinced. And yet I am willing to be convinced, Sean. So I am quite looking forward to giving this a go when it turns up on your doorstep yeah this does not sound like your sort of a game no, item, by the way. no this one is, <laughs> is not for me i'm i'm not one for a co-op so yeah i think just from the description it said with its unique gameplay which is often a bit of a red flag because it maybe means they've just not played enough games but if, if the designers have a good pedigree <laughs> maybe not but with its unique gameplay and innovative leadership mechanic and from the description is it innovative or is this just a way of solving the alpha problem by building the alpha into the rules and just rotating it around and saying, hey, everybody gets a turn to be an alpha? I'm not sure how innovative it is. I certainly haven't seen anything quite like it. It's a twist on other, other things that have been done before. Basically, the leader makes a decision and everybody will secretly decide whether to follow their lead or not. Uh, they might have their own objective to, that they can't follow. It's like follow. a stance, isn't it? Yeah. It's like we're going to be aggressive, yeah. we're going to be sneaky, or... Mm. Yeah. yeah. I, 
I think that that mechanism is definitely the crux of whether this game is a success or not. I think if it works, it could be absolutely fantastic. If it doesn't work, it could drag the game down. But I'm going out on a limb and saying that it's going to work, and I'm really hopeful for this one. So having Adam not be a lover of co-ops, I also chose a co-op game. Yes. So this sounds like the opposite of what you'd like. Senses of the Multiverse, Oblivion, from Christopher Bedell and Greater Than Games. I actually talked about it last episode, so I'll just be quick. It's the final Sentence of the Multiverse product ever. It's going to tie up all of the storyline into Oblivion turns up. He tries to turn all the multiverses into one singularity, which he then pops, and he is all that is left. And you're going to have to try and stop that. I'm very excited about the game, the new challenges, the heroes, the villains, as usual. I'm super excited about the complete collector's box, which is going to have artwork on it, and I'm going to be able to put all of my Sentinel stuff into one box rather than the three boxes that currently hold it all. I'm really looking forward mostly to finishing a journey that I've been on since the game first came out in 2010. played over 90 games of it, and to have it all tied together in the bow feels like something that's quite rare in any media to, to have a series finished off properly and not elongated to, to 10 extra books or to have a TV series tied up and not jump to another channel for two more series and be tarted around with and to actually have something with a bow on. Ugh, that's me, excited. Sense of the Multiverse of Divion. As you say, it being a co-op, this isn't something I've, I've got into at all. Having read up on this one, I think I'm, I'm a little sad that that's the case because the world that is created for this seems really interesting and, and really kind of well made and I love the idea that he's thought up an ending where whether you win the game or not that you could then say well that's an end to the series there's there's no way that these characters this this situation will continue in either outcome so I, I suppose I just want to ask is this a slightly kind of bittersweet thing that you're excited that it's another one and, and that it is running out the series but sad that there'll be no more Sentinels I think there's enough Sentinels. I'm quite happy with it. I'm okay. Yeah, there's so much variety in the game. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. And as as we said last time, it's continuing with the role-playing game, most especially, but in a completely changed form, and Oblivion would have changed the whole world, and whatever it may be, I don't know. So if you're a rabid fan, that world is continuing into the role-playing game, which... Maybe you might try one day, Adam. Well, absolutely. One of our role-playing experts. Yeah, yeah, I might well pick up that. Sorry, maybe that's one I'll run because I'm so excited about Sentinels. <laughs> <laughs> <I>, well, <laughs> you know, I'm not the biggest Sentinels fan, but I'm right, right beside you when it comes to things like with the collector's box and you get everything in the same box. Like more, more people should do that for series of games and just to have it all. It tied has up. delayed the whole. Like we haven't got the game. Yeah. by about six months or something ridiculous because they had so many problems finding a box that will stand up to doing this job. Worth so it, it has delayed everything by about six months. So Worth it. I'm sure there's plenty of people going, like, oh, <laughs> God, I just want the game. I don't care about the box. No, no. It's quite like, no, get the box right. <laughs> get the box, yeah, yeah. No, that is so worth it. Just to be able to contain it all in one box is just luxury. And I, I love yeah, I love the fact that they're tying it all up and it's, uh, there's a narrative just gone through from start to finish. And the world's continuing afterwards, and yeah, happy days. I, everything else I like, I just don't like the game. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, I believe you just want to talk about Kickstarter. <laughs> about how much well, you love it. Yeah, so I, I certainly didn't have a Kickstarter project that I'm most excited about because I, I don't do Kickstarter. I have Kickstarted one game 
which was uh, Matainai by Carl Chudik. So it was from a designer I knew, a publisher I knew, it was a game that I knew was going to happen, it was just a way of pre-ordering it, because I was just super excited about it. Broadly, the whole Kickstarter business, I don't participate in... Whenever I see a game on Board Game Geek that sounds interesting, and I start reading, and I think, oh, well, maybe this is something I'd, I'd like, and then I see, oh, it's going to be on Kickstarter. Okay, so that means that this isn't a game yet. It's not something that exists, and maybe in six months' time it will. Maybe you back it, and as you say, you don't get it for another three years, by which point you've totally called on the idea, something else has come up that's replaced it. It doesn't appeal to me as a way of, of getting games, but also I really feel like it has harmed the quality of games that are being produced. Granted, it means there's a much, much wider range of games that are being produced. There's lots of stuff that wouldn't be produced otherwise, and some of it's good. But I think where it's damaging, to my mind, is that there are a lot of games that have come through Kickstarter where you think, well, that, that's got some nice ideas. That really could have been a good game, but it never had the opportunity to be, because rather than being properly developed, being taken to publishers... And then people who are kind of experts in the field and actually made into something that really hangs together and is a, a robust and enjoyable experience. They playtest it enough to say, yeah, it basically works. Get some nice artwork on it, put in a bunch of minis and throw it on Kickstarter. Then you've got all the stretch goal stuff where ideas that were never really part of the original game are just, oh, we just need more content. We need more stuff, more stuff. And so you end up with elements that are completely unplaytested. Basically, since Alien Frontiers, I don't think I found a Kickstarter game that I really liked. I, I think I kept that quite a reserved and moderate rant. But for you, those yeah, are my yeah. swear words. Isn't it? <laughs> I do much edited. Can't believe about those three personal attacks, but I'll cut those out as well. <laughs> yeah, just in case they're listening. Just the thing for me, Adam, is that if you were new to the hobby and you were getting burned, I could understand that. But you're in a position whereby you can look at a Kickstarter campaign and say. How far away is this? Is there full rules out? Are there full playthroughs available? What is the stretch goal situation? And rather than tiring everything with one brush, it's not that hard to discern the quality from the chaff. And you don't have to back every single thing that's on Kickstarter, but there are certain games that are so interesting. That, I mean, we talked about two last episode. Ayunu, we've played a fully done version of that it's an old print and play that's just come to kickstarter to get played and it's giving todd sanders more exposure or 1066 tears to many mothers is a two-player battle line s car game which is themed but it's very not it's not thematic it's not a meritrash sort of a game it's a really interesting game that can only be made because of kickstarter i, I to me can yes it, there's a lot can of it only be made because of kickstarter would gmt not have picked it up and if oh, not, why God, not? Would you want GMT to pick it well, up? Well, you say Battle Line S. Eight years' time. Eight years' time with a crap rule book. That's GMT's going to be the worst. <laughs> I remember that was a bad example. Yeah, but, but in fact, there's loads of big publishers. I can turn around and say, mm, we look at real throws in the glasses sometimes when we compare Kickstarter games to non-Kickstarter games. I've had Queen games with errors in the rule books and, get, and rules that don't work, and three months later, a second edition rule book. We look, we look at Plaid Hat. Look how they didn't develop C4. Look at lots of other games that feel like really good ideas, but they haven't developed them. And I think sometimes... But is that a, a rushing to the market that's a response to the change in the way that the market works now, the, the way that games are published now, that the big publishers are having to rush things through and do things on more of a Kickstarter basis? I, I'm not saying that that's the case, but it might be... Why would they have to rush? I mean, if we're a big publisher with a huge hit like Summoner Wars doesn't have to rush. 
beat their own drum to decide at what rhythm they're going. They're not in a rush for money or anything like that, are they? You no, know, look at Martin it. Wallace and Tree Frog. How long have they been around for? When did they ever do a decent rule book? It's taken them three editions of A Few Acres of Snow to get to a handful of stars to have something which has you know, smoothed out a lot of the issues. Kickstarter gets hit too hard. Yes, there's a ton of rubbish on there, but also it, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And like I say, someone like you is able to discern between the rubbish and the great. This is true. This is true. But mostly what I'd rather do is wait until it's actually in existence. And the truth is that I don't have that fear of missing out because if it's good enough, it's going to get republished. It's maybe going to get picked up by another publisher. I would rather be able to play a game or see a game and say, yes, this is something I'm interested in, rather than having to put my money on something that may or may not be any good. It's never going to be I'm, for me. I'm just going to say... Potions brew and let Sean come in. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So, Adam. Um, <laughs> so, from just sort of on your first point, where you just said like, wait, you wait six months, wait three years, and it might come. For me, that's not a problem because it's almost like a little present that kind of arrives in the post one day. I back here, I get a little bit excited for a couple of weeks, then I forget about it. You, you talk about that uh, you're going to get some half-assed game and maybe not not the finished pro. But I think what a Kickstarter does is it highlights the game. I think a lot of Kickstarters fans are getting hold of those first edition rule books and saying, "No, this is okay. I'm backed you now. You now you're going to get this right." And they're almost saying to the publishers, "No, it's not good enough." I talked about the the Walking Dead, the game. The fans didn't like the product that they were going to get. They didn't like the robot. They didn't like the the minis, and they sent it back to the publishers. And the publishers reacted to that and came up with a new product, probably a better product. So I, I actually think it, it's helping the business. Sean, I think there's going to be two reactions to that of sort of crowd sourced rule books you're either going to go shudder and go oh my god the designer needs to be able to write their own rule book yeah. or you're going to go I really like that idea but in the, in effect this is people who have never played the game writing the rule book for a game but so not, yeah, but I, but... I, can actually, I sit on both sides of that yeah, yeah. With you, and you actually see it ongoing throughout campaigns sometimes mm. whereby during a campaign the rules are being changed when people talk and they talk about stretch goal and people actually go no that sounds rubbish because there's something alright we'll change it to that and we'll see how it works out and it can be terrifying it can be like oh, I've got $100 in this game and you can't even decide what the rules are or it can be like oh this is actually quite a robust process whereby they're getting thousands of people to check this rule book out for free yeah I'm, I'm not necessarily a great believer in the wisdom of crowds I think that it's much better for a person to say, or a group of people to say, we are designing this game, we're going to make a product, here it is. And sure, sometimes they're no good, but mm. it's at least something that is from one mind and it's coherent and it all kind of makes yeah. sense. I'm willing to be proven There's wrong There's nothing about this. that comes from any of these three minds that's coherent. <laughs> But, but I still think the publishers are still going to pick up their games. I think it's good for the industry to have more games coming in. Like Ian McKellen, he does these Lord of the Rings and he does his X-Men films so he can make the small indie films that are, are, get his teeth into a little bit more. So I almost think it, it publicizes the industry to a, a greater extent. So you do get more of the smaller, more interesting types of games that well, someone like Adam would be more interested in. I've not seen very many come out through Kickstarter. Mostly what you get is stuff that's going to be easy to publicise to an audience who perhaps are slightly less traditional Eurogamers. So what you get is a lot mm. of miniatures. A lot yeah, I'm not of saying that Kickstarter... Kind of stuff. 
Kate yeah. Starter isn't really creating that interesting stuff. I think that that's happening despite Kickstarter. I would love it if there were kind of intricate, different original card games and stuff on there, but there are. That wasn't my point. My point was that just the generally all these Kickstarter big flamboyant games that are coming out are, are making people's eyes turn to the industry. So when somebody goes to a publisher or tries to self-publish without Kickstarter, one of these smaller, more interesting games, I think they've got a greater chance of success because of Kickstarter. Not necessarily that these games will come through Kickstarter. Well, I absolutely hope you're right. <laughs> I, I guess we'll see. Okay, well, this 2016 review has turned into a review of Kickstarter, so <laughs> we're going to move on, okay? All right, you did it. Okay, so moving on to an area very close to my heart. This is our award for the best presented game in 2016. And we're going to kick off with Ronan. I don't think I'm going to be shocking anyone here when I say that my best presented game is Scythe by Stonemaier Games. The game was created strictly from the artwork. It took the story from there and put it into a Euro framework. In terms of gameplay to me, it doesn't necessarily narratively fulfill the promise of the presentation of the game. But when we look in this category, it looks unique. The looks are both fantastically nice to look at and incredibly functional, helps with the rules, it helps to put in mind the story. People are generally talking about their villagers and their mechs and their resources by names rather than blue and green and my unit and things like that. And it creates a nice world to inhabit while you're playing this quite thinky Euro. So Scythe gets the nod from me. Yeah, I haven't played Scythe, so I'm not in that strong a position to talk about it. It does look great. Granted, you know, the artwork's lovely, the minis look great. There are a lot of games now, and, and this is partly what I was grumbling about in the last segment, that are led by the artwork and led by the miniatures. And, and so you have this same thing of a beautiful artwork, lots of cards with, with original art on it and, and lots of miniatures. What is it that makes Scythe stand out from any of those? I think it's that the artwork creates a unique world. It's not another dragon another orc, another spaceship that looks cool with lasers gleaming off it. It's that whole idea of creating this alternate history with the steampunk world, with the agricultural world, also putting it into a slightly different setting, 1930s Eastern Europe, and bringing that to life. That's what it does it for me, rather than looking at the same old things again and again. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about it very, <laughs> for very few moments. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a lovely-looking game. Adam, what's what's your what's your best presented? So my best presented game, and I, I mean, in some ways, this was slightly a choice to be a little contrary, but uh, it really <laughs> was it was the artwork that drew me into this and that, that led to me picking it up at all. So it's a game that came out of Essen called Capital Lux, designed by Elif Svensson and Christian Amundsen Oatsby, and it is a, a small box card game. It only has four pieces of artwork, really, and some abstract art on, on the back of the card. So there are four suits, and each suit is represented by what is, I, I think, an oil painting of a, a kind of slightly spacey, sci-fi type world. And the reason I've chosen it is simply that it doesn't look like any other game. You do kind of grumble 
sometimes on on this show and, and many others do that oh you know there's just that small number of, of artists in the euro world and, and everything starts the same after a while capital Lux doesn't it doesn't have a lot of artwork but what it has is very original is is very different and so that was part of the reason that i picked it up in the first place we talked about this one on our eastbourne episode and i played the game with you there adam myself uh, yourself and natalie and we really enjoyed the game while I see that it is a very stylized and it's very interesting, it didn't leap up to me as being one of the best presented games I've ever seen. And there was also that mistake with the wooden the wooden token as yes. well. It doesn't yeah, scream wonderful presentation. No, so the, the money tokens, wherever they're represented on the cards and in the rule books, are small gold discs. Clearly, they had some kind of problem with the shipping with the, the distributors, and so you've ended up with these odd kind of big square blocks instead. I, you know, I think there are small publishers, hmm, um, yeah, fair so I'm I'm happy to forgive them that. Fair enough, Ronan. You were you did like the artwork on this? I really did like the artwork. I really did. It was striking. It, it was clear what the suits were. It made it look different. The Box art was really nice. So for well presented, which is the overall here, I actually think it's not the worst choice. I don't think it's flashy enough for the top prize when you consider some of the quality of components that we have to deal with. If it was a uh, best presented card game, maybe, because it almost feels unfair, it would be in there along with sort of the amazing range of artwork with FFG games and stuff like that. So I don't think it's the most ridiculous choice ever. I'm just not <laughs> sure it's swimming, with, it's swimming with the big fish. That's all. You've got worse coming up later. Put it that way, Adam. <laughs> Powder being kept dry. Uh, Sean, you've, you've kind of uh, foreshadowed your choice for this one. I have. I'm right alongside you with Scythe Ronan. Yeah, I got the collector's edition and just just the detail that went in into everything, the little stories and the cards and realistic tokens and the metal money and the things to even hold your tokens and the larger board that you can clip together it's absolutely stunning it's one of those games that people look up and say oh what's that is that is that actually a board game up there it looks amazing and it just stands out from the crowd and it, it was just such a lovely production it had to be my number one well, Sean, for once, a choice that I can't see anything uh, negative about. Yeah, good choice. You're on it. Well done. Scythe <laughs> was beautiful. So, you can have good games, but sometimes good games are made better or bad games are made good with... A very good expansion, and this section is best expansion of 2016, kicking off with Adam, who unusually has gone for something related to a card game. What? Huh? <laughs> shocking, shocking, I know. Now, this one, admittedly, I had limited choice, because when I looked through all of the expansions in 2016, I had only played one of them, and it was this wow. one. Both best and worst in category. Yes, and, and in some ways it does fit that bill. I, it's certainly something that I'm really interested by and, and haven't yet played as much as I would like to and, and really want to get to the table again. So this is the expansion to uh, Royal Goods, or as it was stupidly renamed, Oh My Goods, by Alexander Pfister. So the expansion is Longsdale in Alfror, uh, which I looked up means Longsdale in Revolt. And it came out again at this year's Essen. So it was one that I was kind of on the fence about. I like Royal Goods. 
I, I like it almost despite itself. There's a fantastic idea in there. There's something that should really work. But the base game itself led to a very disappointing gaming experience. Because it had this central idea of building an engine, building chains. But that rarely actually won you the game. That wasn't what you needed to do. There was a kind of semi-official rewrite of some of the rules that the designer kind of said, well, I never really expected anybody to be playing this seriously, which seems a slightly odd stance, but, but he said, you know, it was only ever supposed to be really light. Here's a reissue of the rules to, to try and fix some of that. But then what he's done is, is go further and, and release this expansion, which incorporates those changes, but also adds lots of new elements. And the thing that's really interesting that I didn't even realise until I kind of picked it up and, and had a look is that it's kind of a semi-legacy expansion. So each game that you play, it says, turn over the next card, that will say, add in certain elements to the game, add in certain new rules. Obviously, at any point, you can take it all apart and, and start again. You're not permanently changing anything. But it's a way of, of gradually developing the game. Now, it did become apparent that the rules aren't super well written. There was a, a rumour, I don't know how true it is, but somebody said that essentially he had taken it to the publishers and said, look, I've got this idea that I'm developing for an expansion for this. You know, give me another six months, another year, and maybe we can publish this. And they just said, no, let's just publish it now. don't know if that's true, but it feels like it might be. But what it did was manage some of the... The options around agency in the game, because even just in, in the first kind of couple of things that get added, it gives you different avenues to pursue, different ways of kind of making those chains work, and it, and it really means that making your chains work and getting to different types of goods is now something that you have to do in order to meet the requirements for that, that particular game. I don't know exactly how it's going to pan out, I hope to play it quite a bit more, but I really do think that this is in that, that latter category that it made a game with flaws hopefully work a bit better. Yeah, I played the the base game, the original set of rules, not even the amended rules, and it was just a monotonous trudge for Euro mechanisms. I don't know if I'd, I'd be excited enough to try it again, even if it's been a little bit fixed after my first games of it, but I'm glad to hear that they have at least tried to fix it. Have they tried, though? If they've just tracked it. Well, yeah, all right. That it's come up with. Well, <laughs> the, the designer has tried, at least. They've nicked the back of a fag packet he was writing on in the pub to release the first game, and now they've nicked his prototype <laughs> rules to release the expansion. What, do they hate him? Is this some sort of... People hate Alexander Fister, anyway. You're, you're almost selling me on it, Adam, because there was something in that game, apart from the win condition and the way it played. <laughs> yeah, and, and well, but those are the things that the expansion changes, hopefully. Well, okay, uh, maybe. Real dodgy choice for this category, but never mind. <laughs> Sean apparently just got his keyboard stuck because he's typed the same answer for everything. <laughs> best expansion, Sean. Um, my best expansion is again Psy. This is Invaders from Afar, and it kind of, looking at this category just made me realise, uh, like Adam, I've hardly bought or played any expansions at all this year, and. I think it's something that I'm sort of phasing away from in, in my gaming. So, but this is one that I did buy. It was an insta buy for me. It just makes a great game. It elongates it. It, make, it gives you a bit more sort of story, a bit, a few more miniatures, a, a different factions that play slightly differently to, to to mess around with play. So it just it just makes a good game a little bit better. 
it's more of something good, but it doesn't change enough for me for me to class it as a really good expansion. So yeah, mm. I, I, I'd like to, I haven't got it yet. I may well get it if I play more Scythe, but you know, I, I I'm looking forward to the second expansion more, where there's actually a change up of gameplay and it looks like it's going to give something a bit more interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I have no opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> In which case, we'll get on to another at some game point. At some point, I will definitely play Scythe. Really, you will? Yeah, probably. Well, let's it's lock a good it game. in. Gen- Generally, a decent Euro game. I'm not messing. It's not right. what you think it's going to be. No, it's not. That's uh, what my I've choice. Heard a lot. Yeah. <laughs> my choice is Descent Road to Legend from Fancy Flight Games, which took Descent as a one versus many game and turned it into a full co-op and the reason it's my personal favourite is because it gave me a proper chance to use all of my Descent stuff so I can fire up an app, I can put together a party whether it be with the kids or just be with myself and play a hard fantasy fighty tactical game there's not a lot of narrative it's not really an rpg like as it gets described sometimes unless you're really into action rpgs it is a tactical minis challenge fight 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 you've got to do it quite quickly because time will start running out and start bashing you over the head you've got to play it a bit and get quite good at it otherwise the game does get far too punishing and far too frustrating but once you've got those few games in the challenge does start to even up a little, completely changed the base game and made it something I'm more likely to get to the table. So for me, Descent Road to Legend is my choice for best expansion of 2016. This one was was another candidate for most disappointing. I know it's an expansion, but it really did disappoint me, this one, because I had a lot of high hopes for it. It's, it's not awful, but the games that we played, Ronan... I, I didn't get to that point where it was all starting to balance and it was starting to make a bit more sense. And I found it very frustrating. And Yeah, and you were more invested than I was anyway. Kind of at the time, you were like, oh, I'm not really be bothered. And I was like, no, I'm going to stick with it. I had the same problems with you. But once I got through and I had that determination, it was good enough to give me something that, that really I've started to enjoy a lot. So, so I suppose the, the one question I have about this is, does the app interrupt your immersion in the game where you kind of take your turns and then say oh okay now we have to do the admin and we have to move the things that that the app tells us to i feel like i would find that a less satisfying gaming experience than having somebody as the overlord as the, the kind of dm doing those things without the players having to kind of play both sides it almost sounds like you don't enjoy the game having an ai in which all the players have to team up against it there must be a name for that sort of game yeah, there is, isn't there? I'm going to think about it for a little while. Uh, yeah, we've said it before about games of apps. And yes, there is some part of that, especially if you're not very familiar with the rules of Descent. And we mentioned it a long time ago. We talked about Descent Road to Legend, but it's worth reiterating here. It was a stupid idea the way they released it because they've released it without the full rules in one place. And it presumes you're completely with the rules of descent and then you can start doing the other things with road to legend and it won't explain it all properly to you which is crazy because it's a completely yeah. different game and it's so, quite a long time since the original release and you know if i've got a group to play through it or one versus many i'll do that i wrote to legend just for people like solo players or co-op players and they should have presented it as a total package it was, it was a real misstep so Unless you are completely au fait, yes, it does get in the way. Once you do know what's going on, they have presented it quite well. The AI all kind of makes sense and rolls through, but you're always going to have those things where, right, they're going to have the goblins move. 
All right, now the Ittens move. Okay, now the Wolves move, wherever it may be. So it breaks it down a little bit. But once you have to realize is that every move changes your challenge. And because you have to go quickly, you do have to think about, okay, now that that's happened, what's the best spatial way for us to arrange our party now as a team to start moving on and, and trying to get through as quickly as possible? It might actually work best as a solo game. But anyway, I enjoyed it. That's our best expansions of 2016. Before we move on to our top threes and top fives, the last category before that is an out of the dust category. This is a game which we have played previously and there's been some sort of a gap for whatever reason it may be. And it's come back to the table during 2016 and we've remembered what a great game it is. Sean is going to kick us off. Okay, so my one is Alien Frontiers, designed by Tori Nyman and from Clever Mojo Games. An old-time favourite of mine. Always enjoy a game of Alien Frontiers, and it's always been winking me up on the shelf. And it kind of got to the point where I was starting to forget about it. I moved house. It ended up going into the garage uh, with about half of my collection of games, and it kind of sat there and... I was in the garage one day and I just thought, you know what? I keep saying it. We both like it, myself and Natty, both like it. Let's, let's play it again. Played it and we're like, why, do, why, do, why was this in garage? Why do we ever let this go to the point where we hadn't played it in years? Really, really enjoyed it. And then I subsequently played it with uh, Steve, who comes onto our show, and had another fabulous game. It's never let me down and I can't see it let me down for years to come. It's, it's a really good game. I kind of consider it to be almost a great sort of gateway or maybe first step game nowadays. I've played it a dozen times. There's not much left in the base game for me, if I'm honest. And when I add the expansions, it kind of felt like a bit of faff rather than make it more variety, if you like. It's, it's rules overhead. And I'm not sure there was enough depth in the base game for that. Now, I really enjoy it. If someone cracks it out and they say, do you want to play it once or twice a year? Sure. But I think it's just one of those games that I've moved on from for now. Yeah, when I saw this on the list, it really did make me think, hey, I should dig out my copy. I should play that again. I I really like Alien Frontiers. I always really enjoyed it. I think maybe if you play it too many times in a row, you can get a certain fatigue just of of the kind of puzzle-solving element of it. But for me, it's an absolute classic. It's like the gold standard of dice allocation games. I really, really enjoy it. I also, I didn't love the expansions. I had the first one. I was very excited to get it, but found that it just made the game quite a lot harder to teach. Yeah, the factions and individual rules, and you can go in there sometimes, and you can go there other times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I quite like them. Maybe the problem was that I was trying to play that expansion with first-time players. Mm. And so maybe you need people who are already familiar with it. Also, I think you need only like two or three players with because all the factions have different powers. You need to be aware what the other powers are and when they can trigger and things like that. So maybe you the, want fewer of them. Yeah, you want fewer players as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I played a three-player game with the factions added in and I really enjoyed it. So, But uh, I can see what you're saying, guys. So, cool, cool. It's almost like I'm trying to irritate Adam here with all my choices because <laughs> it's another co-op game as yes, my choice. Yes, please. <laughs> I do play other types of games sometimes. This is Ghost Stories from Repost Games and Anton Bowser. 
Uh, I spoke about it again during the year on the show when it came back into rotation and said how much I loved it. So I'll keep this brief. I played it years ago. It was far too hard to co-op. It went in the back of the cupboard and it didn't come out again until Rachel sometime in the summer of 2016 said, I really fancy a really tough co-op. Let's give a tough co-op a go. And I said, tough co-op. I definitely have something that fits that bill. We're going to get destroyed. And sure enough, we got our ninjas out, tried to defend the village. And all those ghosts marched in and kicked our behind. And she loved it. And we carried on playing it. And we've played it, I'm going to guess, a dozen times in the second half of 2016. We've got to the point where we can win on easy fairly regularly. We can squeaked out a win or two on normal as well we've got white moon ready to add into it and ghost stories has had a new breath of life breathed into it yeah i mean literally the only comment i have written down is who are you gonna call i i ghost I, I, stories I <laughs> exactly um i mean so thanks for the insight <laughs> anton bells has got a great pedigree i i have enjoyed all of his games that and, and you know obviously i say obviously i'm agree with this he designed Tenabi, right yeah. Which is the one co-op that I do enjoy, because it's the one co-op where you have to play by yourself. So oh I'm, I'm sure that as co-ops go, this would be very good. But yeah, I haven't played it. <laughs> Fair enough, he's sticking on message. Ronan, is, it's, I have it. I, I want to play it based on your recommendation. I'm a little bit frightened of it, so that's why I don't think I have managed to get it played. But one day, one day. Yeah, it's a sticker. If you're going to play it once, play it half a dozen times, get your head around the patterns, start to feel slightly successful and less beaten up, and then I think the magic kicks in. Adam, yet again, you're up and it's another card game. It is, shockingly. (laughs) My co-op boy, your card boy. (laughs) We don't know what Sean is. Artwork boy. Okay. (laughs) Chrome. So, um, yeah, Potato Man, on, on the subject of artwork, has Probably the worst art on any game. Hold on, you're talking to maybe two Irishmen. Um, you're talking <laughs> to you're talking to hold on two Irishmen. <laughs> so this has a real appeal, was... appeal for you. Appeal, so <laughs> it, it feels like Potato Man was of of that school of games when the hobby was kind of small enough that somebody could say, "Oh, hey, I've, I've come up with this this kind of innovative card game." Also, I've got this mate who does caricatures of potatoes. <laughs> it's a winner. <laughs> <laughs> what Potato Man is, is it's a trick taker with a twist. And there are lots of those. And there are lots of people in NOB who like those kind of games. When I first started in the hobby, I was less into them. And so I would, I would play a, a number of these kind of games and, and wasn't really super excited by any of them. Except Potato Man, which I really, really enjoyed when I played it years ago. So when I happened to see it on the uh, Amigo Spiel stand at Essen... It was a no-brainer. I picked it up, and I must have played it at least a dozen times since then. I really enjoy it. It's just a very, very innovative take on trick-taking. It is definitely at its best with four. It officially plays two to five, but yeah, it's just a a really fun, reasonably quick-playing trick-taker with some horrible artwork. Between yourself and Thomas Preston, Mr. London on board himself... I'm uh, all these trick take. It's a trick taker with a twist. You have seven thousand trick takers with a twist. Why this one, Adam? So this one does a lot of things without adding a lot of complexity. So the the most obvious twist is that there are four different suits, and on your turn you have to not follow suit. You can only play a card if it's of 
a colour that hasn't already been played in that round. But what's interesting is what arises from that. So it means that you have a variable end of each hand because uh, the hand ends whenever anybody can't legally play a card. So you don't know when that's going to be. And the different suits score slightly differently and will score slightly differently over the course of the round. So there's just a lot of emergent gameplay in this. It's one of those that you sit down, you teach somebody the rules, and they're like, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. And then maybe five or six tricks into the first hand, you just see this moment where they go, oh, oh, I see. And there is so much kind of hand management and kind of drawing out of cards and the memorization. All of the the things that are enjoyable about trick-taking games done really well. I really want to try it, by the way. Excellent. <laughs> so yeah, I, I bring it round. One of your weird card games that I'll try. Like once a game session we play with each other, I'm like, yeah, I'll play one of your weird card games. <laughs> All right, that'll, that'll be the next one. Then. <laughs> Sweet. Sean, any thoughts on potato yeah. man? Yeah, I like potatoes. Um, <laughs> I'd go as far as saying I probably have a potato-based diet. And <laughs> you still and, calling it a diet, are you? Wow. Well, potato-based infusion. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so trick-taking games. I've never played one that I just thought, oh, that's terrible, I'll never play that again. But I've never played one that I actually went, you know what, I understood how I could get better at that. But happy days. I'll always play a trick-taking game. I'll never understand it. I'll always be terrible at it. So, yeah, (laughs) bring it on. Then then we should play for money. (laughs) (laughs) Play for potatoes. This, quite simply, is a section all about the games that you have played this year for the first time that aren't 2016 releases, and the best thereof. Ronan, you're up first, I believe. My third in best new to me this year is a game we've discussed previously. It's Legends of Andor from Thames Cosmos, designed by Michael Menzel. This is another co-op, sorry, Adam, (laughs) fantasy game in which... Every quest is a puzzle. There'll be monsters marching towards a castle. You will have some goal you will want to achieve, and you're going to have to do that by working out your moves. And everything you do costs time. When you're going to count through days, and also killing monsters will advance the game clocks. You can't go out willy-nilly. You must be precise in everything you're doing, and yet there is still a story to everything you're doing. It's multi-layered. You must use your characters wisely. You cannot get it done with one character. It is very challenging, and it tells a story. It is quite expansion hungry and that once you've played the five quests in the box you're probably not that likely to play them again but there are expansions more and more become available as Thames Cosmos print them in English and I loved my plays of Legends of Andor this year so for once this is a card that I have actually played I, I played this when it was first released so that must be five or six years ago at least yeah, um, 2012 yeah before my my opinion on, on co had formalised, and this was part of, of me deciding that co-ops weren't for me. I didn't love it. I didn't enjoy the experience as a co-op, but also, I think the thing that really threw me was this notion that killing the monsters acts negatively, that that reduces the amount of time you have left. And I can see the point of it. I can see that you have to do things in a, a targeted way. But just thematically, it seemed counterintuitive. It, it seemed strange to me, so I didn't love it. That bit of the game, I cannot defend, so let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we played this one. I think I 
I sort of came at it thinking it was going to be one thing and it wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. So I, I kind of left feeling a little bit cheated. I thought it was going to be a sprawling, thematic, dungeon crawler-esque thing. And what it was, it was an, it was an operation in efficiency and, and everything had a, a definite yes, it will happen or no, it won't happen. And there wasn't enough random in there for me. So, yeah. Well, I find this odd because you love efficiency euros. I do, but I think the setting and the way I came in thinking what it was going to be, my preconceptions almost kind of ruined the experience for me. And But then, so what I didn't get is why you were unable to change your mindset and go, oh, it's not what I thought. Well, I, I, I think, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> I, I, it kind of disappointed me so much. It wasn't, it wasn't a story that you really influenced. The story just happens around you. And oh, a story that you don't influence that happens around you. Oh, we're going to come back to that comment. <laughs> anyway, what's your number three, Adam? Uh, so my number three is Taj Mahal by Rana Knizias. I love a Knizia, kind of a real sort of golden age Knizia from uh, the era of, of kind of Tigris and Euphrates and Stevenson's Rocket. Those kind of slightly bigger, slightly heavier Knizia games so I was really excited to try a new one. And Taj Mahal didn't disappoint. As a rule, I'm not normally a huge fan of an auction game. And at its heart, Taj Mahal really is a, a bidding game. But it's also a hand management game. It's a card game. You're bidding for position on the board for, for various kind of point-scoring opportunities with a hand of cards, and they are differing means of bidding. So some of them are going to be used in certain ways, and, and once you've established this is what the bid is in this turn then people have to follow along with that. So it's somewhat a bidding game, but it's also just a really interesting, engaging card game. Taj Mahal, loads of fun. Yeah, it's one of those ones that keeps popping up and people keep saying, oh, that's a really good game. We should get that. And it, it's been going for not a lot of money. I think it was part of the work sales. So it was up for like seven or 10 pounds. And something in me was like, oh, it can't be any good if it's, <laughs> if it's in that sale. So yeah, I've not tried it yet, but... Uh, too many people have come up to me and said that Taj Mahal is a fantastic game. So I think I'm, pr- I'm going to have to finally dip my toes in the Taj Mahal water. Yeah, uh, I've owned it for years and I've never played it, which is weird because it is peak Knizia. I must have to say mental block short has on it for some reason. I need to crack this out. Adam, right down next to Potato Man, Taj Mahal, as games we're playing together next time we see each other. Okay, so we're, we're building up a list of, of those we games. Are. And in fact, Sean's next game is going to be on my list. Oh, cool. Right. So my next game is Mombasa. This 2015 release from Alexander Pista and Pegasus Spieler. It's uh, slightly <laughs> thematically, yeah, scratch, scratch, yeah, scratch chin time. We're basically uh, chartered companies that are exploiting the colonization of Africa. Okay, let's move away. What is interesting about the game is a very interesting area control mechanism where you are you not just have your own faction, but you're placing shares in these companies. And so not necessarily the one that you want to expand. You can switch your shares around and expand in a different area. There's a, there's a drafting mechanism going on. There's lots of different tracks, and it's very, very Alexander Fistery in that there's lots of avenues to victory, or what seems to be, and I thoroughly enjoyed my two games of this so far. Yeah, I've been wanting to play this for a while. I didn't think I knew anyone who owned it, so I'm pleased to discover that I do, 
and looking into it uh, in advance of this, kind of looking at some more of the details, just really reminded me again, I thought, yeah, I, I really want to give that a go. I have so far, with with slight preservations around Royal Goods, I've, I've enjoyed all of Alexander Fester's games, so I, I really think this is uh, one that I would enjoy a lot. To me, the most interesting part of the game is the card system, whereby you're creating the actions and you're creating columns, but the game is loaded with so much baggage that you don't actually get to use the cards as often as I want to. You don't get to develop that card system engine as much as possible because there are too few rounds. So I'd like to see him use that card system in the game with less baggage, and then probably I'll be more interested. So my number two is Splash. Splash, um, I was initially I was looking at this to put it on my best games of 2016 list. I was pretty sure it came out this year. But it seems it actually came out in 2014. So this is a tiny... I didn't make much of a splash. <laughs> it did not. Which I think is at least in part because it's not very readily available over here. I had to get my copy from Amazon.de. So it's, it's not always that easy to find. But you can find it quite easily there and, and not desperately expensive. It's designed by uh, a married couple, I assume, by Marie and Wilfried Fort. And it comes in a little tiny tin. Essentially, it really feels like it's a game that came about because somebody was playing a Euro game and just started stacking the various shaped pieces they had. All of the pieces in there will be very familiar to everyone. There are, you know, kind of long, thin bits, which are rails. There are the little kind of hexes, the little tiny cubes. All of the things you normally get as, as the pieces of Euro games. And the notion of the game is that you have to choose the piece that the player to your left is going to have to place on this ever-growing single stack of pieces. So if you can place all of the pieces that you're given and, and get rid of all of your pieces without ever knocking over the stack, you win the game. More commonly, what will happen is that you win by picking up points because the player to your left, the player that you're passing to, has been unable to place their piece. And there are some rules around matching colours and, and matching shapes. So you kind of draft the pieces that you have at the beginning. Essentially, it's a dexterity game with enough going on to make it interesting to a kind of gamer mind as well. There is a tactical element of choosing what to give to people and choosing how difficult to make things in order to try and get those points in. And it comes in a, a little tiny tin rather than the usual enormous heavy box that you get for dexterity games. Splash, one of my favourite games I've played of late and definitely my favourite dexterity game. I haven't played Splash. I didn't even know it existed until, until you mentioned it. Do you think stuff like Junk Art may, may have slightly eclipsed it now? Potentially, but I mean, Junk Art, again, it's in this huge grey box and, and it seems quite complicated. It seems to take quite a long time. I don't know that I ever really want that from a dexterity game. What I want is it for just to be something really light that we can just kind of pick up and play in, in 10, 20 minutes as a filler in the way that, you know, we used to a lot with things like Animal Upon Animal. This really seems to be filling that space. I like to put in a defensive junk art, by the way. I'm not attacking junk art. I, I, I mean, I haven't, I'm sure it's a perfectly good game. Yeah. Uh, just a generic defence thrown in, just because I felt like I should, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> I felt very much of Tumple, as you did for Splash Art, but Ronan, you really didn't like Tumple, so I, I just had a lot of fun. It was really simple. It was really easy to set up. Take Splash down. destroys Tumple. Tumple <laughs> is not fun. Tumple is rubbish. No, you're rubbish. Splash... Yeah. Splash is a great game you're, and a really good choice a in a little tin, all the fuss gone with a little bit of thinking to it. Tum tumple, get out of tumple. Cool. Move on to your number two. What's going on? Anyway, 
My number two is Ancient Terrible Things 2014 release from Simon McGregor and Pleasant Company Games. Very simply, you are rolling dice and manipulating those dice to overcome monsters. You're on a little journey down a river or something. Or rather, is the theming behind it. You're using those dice uh, results to also bring tokens into your fold and to get equipment that are going to help you manipulate things. I love me a game where I can manipulate some dice. I go on all the time about to court the king it's, it's kind of in that in that mold but maybe not as tight as that one very loose very luck based but still a lot of fun and i have had a lot of fun playing it i'm gonna ask you now if you could retheme ancient terrible things to any other theme what would it be goodness gracious you put me on the spot uh yes i have what do you reckon it could anything <laughs> anything you want anything it could be anything. That's my point. It literally. It could be anything. So why have they chosen bloody Cthulhu? A funny Cthulhu game. Oh, it's wacky. It's got tentacles. You know why yeah. they have? Because the license is free. I'm not even going to look at it. I'm not even going to contemplate it until you do a fan remake and retheme it. Because fun and Cthulhu don't go together. It's the end of the world, people. We need to cotton on to the danger. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I wasn't really aware of this. I think I'd seen the adverts on Board Game Week a while ago for something else from the designers of Ancient Terrible Things. Never heard of it before that. So I did uh, look it up for this. It looks kind of interesting. I like a dice game. I like a, a kind of dice manipulation game and a, a kind of push-your-luck game. However, there are lots of those. There is the Court of King. There's, there's lots of kind of simple, small kind of push-your-luck dice games. This, from what I could see, is big and is like, 40 quid for a copy is it worth that given that there are smaller simpler ways of having this same experience uh two things it's not worth 40 quid it's uh, i think i picked it up for like 25 you can get it that around that price mark the expansion actually offers it turns the game almost into a travel edition so you can almost fit everything into this tiny little box and this tiny little board it shows you how sort of grandiose they were with this massive board solves your problem adam <laughs> right well maybe i'll give it a look okay we're gonna move on to my number two best new to me game in 2016 this is from queen games and stefan feld and it's amerigo in which the players are in ships and they're going to be going out exploring islands which can be laid down by tiles to create every time you play it's going to be modular and different and you're going to settle and exploit these islands for points your actions are all driven by a cube tower which is seeded initially with cubes and they get dropped in every turn and the number that dropped out of a certain colour is sort of, sort of the power of that particular action that colour action for this turn there's very much to do with timing opportunities on which cubes are in play when and also what opportunities the other players have afforded you it's very interactive you're trying to get in and out the majorities for being on islands big islands small islands getting on board there trying to steal in and get second place for area control and what have you there's lots of medium-term planning whereby you want to take a certain action, but you can see there's going to be a scarcity of cubes coming up or you think there may be. Therefore, you might have to take a less good action right now, less optimal action right now, in order to plan ahead so that you're not getting screwed by pirates, for example, later on. It was something I was very hesitant to play for a few years since we saw it at Essen. We reported on it back in early game pit days and we said it didn't look great when I played it this year and I should have played it back then because I really enjoyed it. America. Yeah, we definitely didn't like the looks of it back then. Uh, I think it was kind of sold on that on that tower 
a little bit too much. And when you went and saw the tower, that wasn't that special. And then you saw those tiles and then kind of put me off the game. It's another one on this list. I always end up every year looking at this list going, I've really got to play that. So I've already said it about Taj Mahal. I would like to give Splash a game. And I've definitely got to play America. I'm a big Stefan Fell fan. And too many people, yourself, Ronan, Steve, have said it's a great game. So I'm going to get on board. I'm going to play some America. Nice to hear, nice to hear. Adam, any yeah, thoughts I, on the uh, I, I played this when it first came out and really enjoyed it. I, I really like the cube tower mechanic, the way that they've done that, that it gives you some notion about what's potentially going to be coming up in the in the next couple of turns. As you say, you can plan ahead, but not absolutely. I, I don't know that I really loved the rest of the game around it, but it was taught to me not brilliantly. And, and so I think it, it was just that it was, it was quite a sort of exhausting teaching. I, in some ways, I'm surprised that it didn't lead to lots more games doing a, a similar thing. We haven't seen that many kind of cube tower games since then. Mm, there's one coming up. I can't remember the name of it now. So that's almost a pointless comment. But maybe we can put that on our list for our apparently 30 hour long game session we're going to play next time. Yeah, Sean, you're sticking to a nautical theme. I am. It's Shipyard 2009 release from Vladimir Sushi and Czech Games Edition. It's a game that I'd long heard was a really good game. Ronan kept telling me, you're going to love this game. So what it is, is you're building ships. You're going to put crew on those ships, score as much points as possible. Happy day. Very dry, economic Euro game. Very interesting action track. The timing of that is, is spot on for me. Lots of things to consider with your ship parts, your route building, your placing crew on the board. You've got action tiles, your money in there. It's so far up my street, I'm, I'm moving in. An efficiency, Euro, dry, economic game. I absolutely loved it. And I can't believe I didn't play it. This has been in my rotation pretty much since it came out. I think when it came out, uh, Steve Padgett, we were talking about him, you've talked about it a few times. He bought it. We played it in 2009. And I don't think uh, it has been out of rotation since then. I love it. The contracts, yes, they're not the best balance, but that's 2% of a game that doesn't work and 98% of it certainly does you've got control over your own canals where you're going to score you've got control basically over everything and yet it's still interactive and people can screw you by moving on a certain rondel and annoying you and you've got to sort of plan around it and what have you having that four money taking extra action at the right time is absolutely crucial and Shipyard is a really really great game so I have just quickly looked up Shipyard in order to not say something stupid when it came round to me um, and it seems that I was about to, because I thought Shipyard was a Matt Gertz game. It's just, it's just got loads of rondels in it. <laughs> just rondels equals Matt Gertz. Oh, so then I have, then this is the game that I played. Yes, it's kind of almost got rondels within rondels. It has got a couple of rondels within rondels and then spare rondels, and then rondels out the other side as well. So that being the case, I, I don't really have much to add, because I, I've played the ones and I absolutely loved it. I, I agree with everything you've said. Um, of those kind of rondel games, I think it works really well. Um, it kind of makes for that, like you say, the kind of timing of making sure you've got things at the right time and the opportunities come round. Yeah, absolutely great. Okay, so we're going to move on to my number one best new to me game 2016, and it's Medina from Stefan Dora and Stronghold Games with a reprint in the second edition in 2014. The players are building 
buildings and roads in a city on the turn they're going to get to add two bits of wood to the board there are four different colors of buildings and only one building in each color can be being added to at any one time you can either expand the buildings or you can claim a building off a color and you're trying to claim a building at the time at which it has reached its maximum size so that you're going to end up with the biggest building of that particular color Obviously, from then on, you're trying to sort of hem buildings in of the colour you've already claimed to make sure no one gets a bigger one than you. You're going to score points for how big it is, a bonus for having the biggest one. There are lots and lots and lots of opportunity for blocking and being mean in this interactive, tough, hilarious spatial puzzle. And Medina was just brilliant. My best new to me game for 2016. I like Medina. I don't love it. I, I don't know that it would be on, on this kind of... The timing element is very interesting, it's very clever. really kind of creates a lot of tension in the game. I didn't quite feel like there was enough else going on somehow, in terms of because cause this has just been reprinted. And I, I don't really know its place in the, the modern gaming market, as, as opposed to kind of four years ago, whenever it was that, that it first came out. So I enjoyed it, but I wasn't desperate to play it again. Oh, it's a bit, Sorry, a bit flat, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's just because it plays so quickly that it doesn't need any more than that timing. It's the timing and then the spatial aspect to make sure you continue blocking after that and you use the road cleverly. And if I've claimed an orange building, I want to try to be able to start an orange building somewhere. I know they can't grow bigger than what, that which I already have. And I have to have manipulated the road in order to do that and what have you. And people suddenly get this dawning sense in them that they're going to get the fourth purple building and that it's going to be about two blocks big and that they've absolutely screwed that up and things like that. So for, for the less than an hour play frame, I think a lot's going on. Yeah, there, there definitely is. I think, for me, it was kind of slightly more clever than fun. Oh. But, yeah, oh, you know, maybe like I just me. had a slightly flat game of it. This one I was a bit frightened of because I heard how mean it was. I was all set to give it a go because so many people like it. And I watched the game at uh, London on board. Uh, involving someone who's just the most like, yeah, whatever, yeah, smash me up, I'm happy, happy face, whatever, and he was fuming. It's not the game for me, I'm going to get too upset playing this, so I've, I've avoided it since then, and I don't think I really want to play it, but I hear very good things about it. Let's just let's only play it after we've been down the pub for a few hours. That's when we don't want to play it. <laughs> That's when we do, it'll be fine, it'll be fun. Adam! Yes. You're coming at us out of left field yeah. somewhere. Well, I, when, when I was putting this list together, I, I really thought that this might be slightly too left field pick, but then I listened to the last episode of the game pit and discovered that, that you were planning to, to talk about this kind of thing. So the game that I've been introduced to um, kind of over 2016 and that in some ways has led to me playing a few of the other games that came out in 2016 was that I've started playing some RPGs. I've kind of already played a little bit of GURPS, but in 2016, we started a D&D campaign. So this is 5th edition D&D. A friend sort of said, oh, well, look, I've just got the new book. I'm kind of interested to give this a go. Anybody up for it? And, and so a group of us have started playing D&D. And I enjoy it enormously, far more than I expected to. So kind of as a child, I had the, you know, the kind of box, the first quest thing, and gave it a go. But I think at, at that age you don't necessarily have the right framework up to then I've kind of played a lot of games workshop type things where it's very kind of rigid and these are the rules and this is how it works and and so to have something that freeform 
in some ways, I think works better when you're that bit older and you're happy to just go with the imagination and, and be creative. Obviously, it's also perhaps odd that I should like this given my stance on co-ops. And, you know, arguably, a, a role-playing game, even though you have the DM, you've got somebody who's opposing the players, what you're all doing is cooperating in building a story. Often, people will sort of describe it almost as though it's a film, and so this is what you would see, this is the appearance of... It's just a very different thing. Scratch has got a different itch to gaming. I mean, honestly, as a game, it's probably, if you just judged it by the standards, the criteria that we would any other game, it's, it's probably not that good. You know, it's enormously luck-dependent. It's very swingy and just based on this kind of weird, very flat D20 system where however good you are in something, there's still a reasonably large chance that it's just going to fail. Judging it by different criteria, it's a really, really enjoyable experience and something I've started doing a lot more of since that, that first game. So, um, yeah, D&D, we're number one. Yeah, we're going to explore this further at some point over the summer, aren't we, in an episode? Yeah. You weren't the first gaming friend of mine who said they'd been starting D&D, and it seemed almost outlandish 18 months ago when someone said it. And now everyone seems to be doing it. It's like going back to role-playing is the new cool thing. Here's my question, okay. I found that I used to read a lot of fantasy books, and I've stopped reading so many fantasy books. And it's the same issue that I think I'd have with D&D, is that there are tropes. and that no matter how good or not the game or the book may be, once the tropes start coming up, I sort of start going, oh, another one. You know, another big fighter, or another wizard with a grey beard, another meeting in a tavern, another village that's in peril, yeah. another orc chieftain with his goblin soldiers. You know, it's stuff I've read, seen, done before. Done in my teenage years when I did a bit of D&D, and I don't want to do it again. Have you avoided the tropes, or have you embraced them, or have you dealt with that sort of thing? Because, you know, the fantasy genre is quite set yeah and D is quite set within those tropes so within this campaign there were there were two of us there was um, me and lloyd who were both brand new to role-playing and the other three who were already kind of familiar and i think that the tropes help in that sense they give you a hook and so it's a nice way to ease in and then of course once you're up and running the way that you can design within D&D is enormously free and you can take it in any direction you want. So you don't have to get bogged down in those tropes. We started with the, uh, again, there's, there's been a sort of boxed introduction to the, the fifth edition, which has a written adventure in it. And all of the stuff in that was pretty obvious. It's, it's the stuff you'd expect. But we've now gone beyond that. And now Alec, our DM, is, is developing his own story and, and building on the characters. And so it's completely gone away from any of those tropes. And, and it can go anywhere, really. So I can understand why people who've been doing it for a while would want other systems and, and other kind of settings than just the basic fantasy one. Uh, my only comment really is I would absolutely kill to get involved in something like that by... If I had anything close to the time to put into it, but one day, one day. Uh, the, the time is, is a kind of a, a difficulty. So I've not been doing as much gaming because you kind of say, well, like at least once a fortnight or, or kind of like we try and get in a couple of times a month to do that. And now also we're doing a um, Star Wars Edge of Empire campaign as well. So it has taken away from the time that I would have for just standard gaming. But it's, it's so rewarding if you can find the time for it. And we're going to be doing a Faith RPG, Garden in Hell RPG campaign sometime soon as well, by the way. Yeah, we heard about that in the last episode. So Yeah, it's coming. I'd be interested in any of that. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. It's the big one next.
Okay, we're finally there. Well done if you've survived to this point, and it's a very long episode. If you fast-forwarded, shame on you. We are at top five time. These are our very top five games from 2016. Ronan. Yes. I'm going to start with my number five, and it's Oracle of Delphi from Hall Games and Stefan Feld. This is an ancient Greek-themed race game in which each player is vying to be the first to perform 12 actions and get back to Z and Zeus, who will be in the middle of a modular board. At the end of your turn, in fact, you roll two dice. Those two dice are going to dictate what actions are available to you on your next turn so you can plan ahead the dice correspond to areas you can travel to to bits on the board you can interact with you can pick up statues onto your ship you've got limited cargo hold you can fight monsters you're going to want to take offerings to temples all the time when you're rolling your dice you can help other players advance their gods once a god has advanced a certain level they give you one-off powers which kind of break the rules and change the game you're going to get attacked once a turn by titans you're going to build up weapons by going on quests or possibly getting different companions while you fight monsters there's a lot going on but it's all about efficiency sometimes reading other players being interactive seeing what opportunities are open to you which ones you can afford to leave to later on and the whole while through looking to do slight dice manipulation to not waste too much time during this race game euro i absolutely Love it. Excellent. I haven't tried this one. I'd very much like to. It sounds like it'd be my kind of thing. So I suppose the one question I have is from reading the descriptions, you know, it says you roll these dice and they determine the actions you can take, but potentially you can mitigate that. And I think that's always, with, with this type of game where you have that input randomness, does it strike the right balance where you can mitigate against bad luck and you can change things, but not to the extent that it entirely removes it and makes it pointless to roll the dice at all. Does it get that balance wrong? Yeah, so you get favour of the gods tokens from doing various things. And by spending them, you can move the dice around in a clockwise direction. So yellow might go to blue, to black, to red. So to get from yellow to red will cost you three tokens, for example. As you're doing things, you often get to choose rewards. So if you're using lots of favour of the gods tokens and you have to use your rewards to take the favor of the gods you're just slightly missing out in other areas so it's not a huge thing but what you don't want to do is be constantly spending loads of favor of the gods tokens and just changing your dice and it doesn't matter it does matter what they are and it's a case of making a decision whether do i i move only two spaces and do one thing this turn with these dice and leave them as they are keep my powder dry or do i splooge a lot and move move it further uh, and do something else I was originally planning to, but I didn't get the dice roll for. So you can't constantly do it, and it's very much more a timing thing, which I find interesting. Yeah, this one, Ronan, is uh, the one that I am most surprised is on your list. I don't think it's a bad game. I played it once. I thought it was okay. I enjoyed it. Uh, I wouldn't mind playing it again. For some reason, I didn't see you enjoying it at all. I, did, I thought you'd find it was slightly too too light, not enough choices, and what choices there were. There's loads of choices. Loads. Constantly. No. Apart from towards the end, where your path is kind of set. That is choices on... choosing your path. Yeah, but if somebody goes off and they're going to get the colour of monument that you want before you, then you, you, your choice is narrowed down and it's going to be the one that you're closest to that you're probably going to go but for. But like you, you're only ever tied into two-colour monument and the third colour is it always wild-colour. random, colour. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so you, you can kind of go, all right, so if blue's not on for me, now do I change my strategy and I definitely go yellow, green, mm. and then I, you know, it, you, you choose. Yeah. You decide, is that worth the risk? And sometimes the choice has to be made, as Adam said, when the, when the dice are rolled, you go, oh, I could grab that green one white right now. That wasn't in my long-term plan, but it's kind of an a, a act of opportunity. I can grab it now and deliver it on the way to fighting that monster. Okay, later on, that's going to make things slightly more difficult, but is it worth it doing it now? And it's all that judgment of, is it worth doing that right now with these dice? So it gives you a good balance between your long-term strategy and then your kind of immediate tactical advantages. Every now and then, it's worth breaking your long-term strategy to go, okay, no, I'm going to grab this now quickly before anyone else does. Well, then I think we should add it to the list. (laughs) As I said, it was a a complete surprise. I'm I'm happy to give it more goes and see how it develops for me. Let's play it again and see if if you find some love for it. Because I'm actually surprised you didn't like it more. Because I felt like it had everything that you usually like in a game. But there you go. I I know I did like it. I just didn't, didn't love it. And I kind of played it as a purely efficiency game. I was like, okay, I'm nearest to this. I'm going to go for that first. And I ended up winning the game. So maybe the other people didn't play very well. Maybe I just lucked out on that one. You need to play against Rachel. There are no cheap wins against <laughs> any Feld game. Any Feld game that's ever been created. It's like Feld and Rachel share and brain. Okay, Adam, you're going to move us on to... I'm not going to say it. It's got my, cards in it. My number five uh, is, shockingly, another card game. And uh, this one is Hand of the King by Bruno Cathala. So this is a very abstract, positional card game set in the, the Game of Thrones, well, set notionally in the Game of Thrones world. So the notion is that you have a, a five by five grid of cards, 24 of which represent characters from the Game of Thrones world in seven different houses. And, and the, the 25th card is Varys, the spymaster. The notion is that on your turn, you're going to move him along any single orthogonal line. You move uh, as far as you want along that line up to the end of a particular house within that line. So if there are three cards in the same house, you say, I'm going to move along that house, and you pick up all of those cards and add them into your tableau. And what you're looking to do is get the majorities in the houses which will then allow you to grab banners, and that's how you're going to win the game, is when uh, there's no legal move left to be made, the player with the most banners wins. It plays straight with with two players, and apparently with three, although I I haven't tried it with three, and then it plays as a really interesting team game with four players, where you each have your own tableau, and you're, you're collecting the houses yourself, but it will be the team's combined banners that determine who wins. So what you're looking to do there is set up your teammate for, um, you know, a kind of one turn further along after after your opponent has gone. So it's it's a really interesting puzzle game, and it is certainly one of those games where you can get to a certain point, and you both sit there and, and think, okay, well, you're going to win in four turns. You you will kind of hit those points where there's nothing you can do, but I think that's just in the nature of puzzle type games and uh, yeah I really enjoyed it it also has a slight random element there are other cards there's smaller cards so if you take the last member of the house even if perhaps you're still not getting the advantage of them there are these um, five or six special action cards you can choose one of those and also they bring the theme back in because they're always very strongly connected to what that character 
would do within the books within the TV series, how they relate to the houses. So yeah, I just it's it's a very enjoyable game that I've played quite a lot now. I've got a few friends who have copies and and have really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was one that Ronan introduced to me. We covered it on a Lobstercon episode a little while back, and I ended up going buying the game. I've only ever played it two-player, and I actually believe that the team game is a lot more interesting. But as a two-player game, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's greater than the sum of its parts, shall we say, and I also absolutely adore the artwork. Yeah, yeah, that was a, a real hook for me as well, was seeing um, a very different take on, on a Game of Thrones, that quite kind of cartoony um, version of the artwork. Adam, this is a great little puzzle game. I can confirm it does work three players. I played it with my kids and they loved it. This, for a small card game, was a contender. This is in or around my top 10 for 2016. Didn't make my list. Spoiler. That is not the last time I'm going to call a game that didn't make my list a contender, by the way, folks. Because these two have actually made some decent choices, which is a little bit surprising. And, uh, but, but this, I really love Hand of the King. I said as much previously and nothing has changed my mind since. Okay, so my my number five is Railroad Revolution. We've done a full review of this one, so I won't go on too much. It's uh, from designed by Marco Canetta and Stefano Nicolini. It's from Watch Your Game and Pegasus Spieler. It's a game themed around the birth of the railroads in the USA, and you have a very interesting worker worker placement mechanic in in which you're trying to get different color workers into your into your tableau and they all do slightly different actions than the base color worker would do i love the puzzle of this game i love that you've got so many choices when you're expanding out your railroads what color workers you're going to get into your tableau are you going to specialize in one are you going to try and get a broad spectrum of them how do you use them how quickly do you turn them over lots lots to think about in this game I enjoyed it the very first time I played it. I'm still really enjoying it now. I think it's a fabulous game. It's my number five, Railroad Revolution. Yeah, again, this is one I, I haven't played. It definitely appeals. So I think this is, is one that I would I would like to, to have a go at. I looked up some reviews and, and was kind of looking for, for some negative reviews to, to just kind of see the reasons people perhaps didn't like it. And so a lot of people were saying it was too long, too solitarish, and that there weren't really enough strategies that you would just kind of get set into one of, of a very small number of passages kind of truck away on that does any of that sound familiar there was one uh, there's actually been a rule change because there was the old uh, telegraph tactic or strategy that you could follow a lot of people seem to think that that was uh, always going to win you the game it was the easiest one to follow this three there's three points tracks and three areas you're going to concentrate. So I suppose it's not the broadest range of tactics and strategies, but within those, they're, they're both, they're all three of them are very interesting and very different. But uh, in terms of length of the game, I think it can be eked out by people not wanting the game to finish because once the last player finishes, uh, takes a certain amount of their, their pieces off their player board, then uh, the round will finish is one more go after that. So sometimes people will eke it out because they've got more to do. And I think the game can be uh, elongated by that. Now you kind of uh, glossed over that rule change there, Sean, or they changed it a little bit. They massively changed that telegraph track <laughs> to balance it up. This is a game in which every penny counts. It used to cost 50 and then $100 to do the last steps up for the last multipliers on your points. They've times them by 10. It's now... 500 and a thousands it cost you 1500 to max that track out rather than 150 that is a huge change to the game that is a 
big problem that should have been picked up in playtesting. Okay. Was, uh, was this kickstarted by any chance? No, no, no. It's a What's Your Game EU, and it's also a Pegasus Spieler. I, I found it a lot of fun. As I said in the review, I've started kicking it in the teeth there. Uh, slight concerns about replayability. It's a decent choice, Sean. It's a top 20 game for the year for me, but it's not one of my absolute favourites, although I can see myself playing it, you know, once or twice a year for the next few years going forward. I enjoy my plays. Probably what Adam alluded to. Maybe they're not that different, though. And that was my number five. That was Railroad Revolution. Now we're moving on to Adam, who I wholeheartedly agree with. Uh, yes, so my number four is Ulm. I was was somewhat surprised listening to uh, I think the, the last but one game pick to find that I was entirely in agreement with Sean about a Euro. Ulm is is really an excellent game, and and I think just to kind of address what Ronan was saying at that time that you know it's just another Euro and and it doesn't really stand out. I really feel that I got into this hobby because of Euro games. And I was introduced to various different things around the same time. And it was the Euros, it was the kind of Knizia things, it was the classic Euros that hooked me in. And so I'm always looking for a solid middleweight Euro. Something that does kind of some things that are familiar, but then has something novel, something interesting, some kind of hook. And that's exactly what Ulm does. The, the way the action selection works with that tile pushing is I believe entirely novel. I can't, there's certainly nothing else that I've played that, that works in that way. Really interesting. But then it, it kind of fits in with other reasonably familiar Euro mechanics. So it's quite easy to pick up and, and to work with. And everything just fits together really well. I think the whole, ha- whole thing hangs together beautifully. And I, I think it looks quite nice. I, I, I believe you would say it looks very bland. But, you know, there's, there's that nice little... 3D cardboard cathedral. It's it's classic Euro territory, done really well. Yeah, well, I, as you know, Adam, I, I do agree with you. I think I, it was definitely in my top twenty. I pulled twenty games out, and they, I started having a look at them. I'm not sure if it crept into my top ten, but definitely in the top twenty. Yeah, I agree with you. When I'm looking for a Euro, I almost look for the dry sort of driest little game I can find because you know that the mechanisms are going to be quite strong in there. Yeah, nothing massively new about Ulm. But it's kind of uh, a reassuringly clever game. Yeah, absolutely. I don't need to comment because Adam's answered my comments already from a couple of shows ago. Uh, (laughs) I guess I'll say one thing. When you're looking to make your game look more interesting, choosing a 3D cathedral's never been done before. (laughs) You go, Ulm, you bad boy. It's reassuringly familiar. God bless you. Sean! Okay, another one we've talked about at length is Great Western Trail. Uh, It's our old friend Alexander Pfister, and he's coming from Stronghold Games. This is your essentially moving your cattle along a Great Western Trail. You're taking those cattle up to the railway, and there you're going to sell them for profit. The interesting thing is, along your path, you can almost sort of set up your own hubs. So you're going to lay tiles that affect you and maybe stop other players in some cases. Very clever game. Lots of options for you to choose in the, in the buildings or how what cattle you're going to get into your hand. I just, I, from, from day one, I love this game. This one was, at one stage, I was thinking it was pushing for my number one game of the year. It hasn't quite held that sort of luster but it's still very, very high up on my list, as it is at my number four. Great Western Trail is that beautiful person that I'm dating 
that everyone around me says, oh, they're gorgeous, they're gorgeous, they're gorgeous. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm just not quite feeling it. Uh, it's a top 10 game to me, but playing it, and it's a heavier Euro, it's got all that thinkingness. You think, wow, that's it, match made in heaven, Ronan and Great Western Trail. But I haven't sparked, I haven't fallen in love, and I've played it a number of times. <clears throat> I don't know what it is. Me and Great Western Trail haven't quite clicked. We need to go for a weekend away, whitewater to rafting, and see whether that brings the inspiration. Yeah, I think you've, you've really picked up on the the word that I would associate with it, which is thinky. It's a really enjoyably thinky game. One thing that's never so slight barrier to, to really connecting with it is that it's very strongly themed. It's really kind of built around this theme, and the artwork's really great, but the theme doesn't quite connect with the mechanics. The, you know, things, things like, well, I'm, I'm taking these cattle to market, I'll change them along the way, and I'll only be able to sell my herd of cattle if they're all different. There are things that are thematic elements that help you to learn the rules, which is not to say, you know, there's not any real criticism of it. I really enjoyed it. It would certainly be in my top, you know, 15 for the year at least. Yeah, I think maybe sometimes it's the theme that's, that's a slight barrier. Yeah, no, fair enough. I can, I can see that. But one, I think when you say like it's a really, really thinky, I think one of the clever things of this is, yeah, it is really thinky, but it's thinky in stages. So you're never overwhelmed by your choices because you've only got like a few steps that, that you can go ahead. So do I do this or this? And then you're thinking, okay, after that, what am I going to do? So I think that's where a lot of the cleverness lies for me. Ah, oh, come horror. LCG is my number four for the year from Fantasy Flight Games designed by Matthew Newman and Nate French this is a co-op LCG set in the Lovecraft universe and properly in the Lovecraft universe with peril and fear and desperation and not funky tentacle laughing <sighs> okay in this game depending on what scenario you're playing so scenarios come out for it all the time you travel to locations you're attempting to discover clues you're attempting to manage threats at the same time there may be monsters you have to fight there may be people you have to persuade there may be mysteries you have to solve before each game you're going to choose a character which has its own individual deck with different cards in you're going to shuffle it up draw your hand and use resources to pay for the different cards you have as you play through campaigns and that is what this game is designed to do you're going to gain experience from how well or poorly you do in the different campaigns and you're going to be able to build your deck by paying for cards to bring in with your experience points and hopefully improve your deck for the increasing challenges you're going to face how you do in different adventures changes how the next adventures play out there's a developing story, it's tough, it involves proper teamwork. The only reason it is as low as number four is that I've had too few plays of it to have fully explored the content that is out yet. This is a candidate for rising up this list later on, but that is Arkham Horror LCG, my number four. Well, I've come to the realisations I don't like LCGs. Everyone I've played, they're fiddly, they're faffy, they're hard work to get together. Then they fleece you for money on top of that. I'm just, I'm, I'm done with LCGs, especially fantasy flight LCGs. Because it's just, it's too much of an investment of money when I've got to do too much work to make something work. Uh, so there was too many works there. I know, but the point stands. You're a lazy gamer. It's all right. Your mother's very disappointed in you. Adam, <laughs> any thoughts on Akamura LCG? It's another co-op, isn't it? I, I actually I haven't heard of this one until I, I saw it on your list, which is surprising for a big kind of fancy flight release. 
Oh, this is everywhere, Adam. I think this is more about you. <laughs> or you've just got blindness. I, I have certain blinkers. Yeah, certain things that I just don't, don't really register. So, yeah, not for me. Damn, I'm surrounded by you. Let's move on to Sean's number three. <laughs> it's me getting lazy again. And my mother's even more disappointed I'm putting the same game in. It's number three is Side, of course, from Jamie Stegmeister, my games. I think we've kind of... We've kind of summed up a lot of the, the beauty within the game, and I think the game actually, play actually stands up today. It's a strong Euro game with a hint of battle. You can you can go to war if you wish, but there is uh, penalties for going to war, So, uh, they, which is different in that kind of dudes-on-a-map game, and it looks beautiful. So sides my number three. This my five Oracle Delphi up to my number ten were all close. So my first four I kind of set on, and then I was like, "Oh!" So this was one of those which could have easily been number five or number ten or anywhere in between. Uh, and and most of them appear on this list actually somewhere or other. So it's right in there. I'll say the only thing I think I mentioned it before is that I've never found my regular scythe group that I'd really like to have and sit down and play it and really dig into the bones of it to discover whether. The chrome is blinding me, or whether there's actual meat underneath all the pretty. So that was really the the one question that I had, because what people say all the time is, oh, but it's it's a Euro game, really. You know, ignore all of the the appearance of it. It's just a Euro. So I guess the, the question would be, if it didn't have the chrome, if it didn't have the artwork and the miniatures, if it were just a sort of generic expanding in the you know kind of early European world and it was just a board and, and wooden chits and, and you know kind of the usual kind of Eurogame components. Do you think it would still be your number three? I certainly wouldn't have been drawn in as, as readily as I was, but I think the game under there with the different the different scoring and the elements of exploration and the elements of storytelling and the the way that the different factions all work I, I think yes, I think it would. I think it was a, it was something when I first kickstarted it. It was oh yeah, you know it's really pretty. Uh, I hope it's a decent game. When I got it, I I was overwhelmed at how good a game it was. So I think the gameplay has definitely kept me playing it, even if the Chrome drew me in the first place. Yeah, I, I think if you're talking about games that have drawn you in with the pretty and then let down the gameplay, we've talked about Cryavoc and Innis and stuff. They might not have been quite as pretty, but they're quite similar, as in they put minis in there and try and make it sort of a Euro conflict game on top. And Scythe was the one of those big releases last year that, for me, actually worked. Fair enough. I should definitely give it a go. Okay, that was my number three. That was Scythe. So for my number three, we're going to go to something a little bit different. This is Mask of Anubis, which is a Japanese game. I'm not going to butcher all the names of the designs or what have you. In the game, the, the team are working together. And most of you, each round, are going to attempt to build a maze with tiles. You're attempting to build the entire maze to get the dog to the exit. The problem you have is the information on the maze comes from a mobile phone which is going to get popped inside a mask and given to one player and they are going to look around using the mobile phone the mask that's the mobile phone is anything they can see and that will give them the view from one spot within the maze and they have to turn 360 
up and down, look around and explain both the spatial features and also the other features that they can see in the maze to help the other people play it. The next person takes a turn, they take the mobile phone, they are standing in a different position in the maze and they're going to explain what they can see. And you go round and round, depending upon how many players you've set the maze to be for and hopefully some of them will be able to recognize areas of the maze they're seeing from a different angle to someone who's seen it previously and you have a limited amount of time to shout out everything that you can see where people are trying frantically to build the map it is absolutely hilarious it is very hard especially initially although you can get a bit better at it it's completely different it is a true conversation maker icebreaker team game whatever you want to call it it's something that i very much play games for is to have that shared experience and laughter with other people and mask of anubis does it brilliantly so this may surprise you given my general commodionliness and my, my usual attitude towards co-ops i absolutely love this Mask of Anubis is amazing. <laughs> it's so much fun. I think it's probably most fun when you're not very good at it. And and I would always try and play it with at least one or two new players because just the, the sheer chaos of it is incredibly enjoyable. Or, of course, you can always play it with G, who is, is uh, the we know who owns it, who is just consistently <laughs> hilariously awful at it. I had another idea, by the way. My idea was that only two of the team are building the, the map at any one time and then the other five players are all looking in their mobile phones trying to give the directions. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that would make it okay, a bit harder. Well, anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's really enjoyable. I think the, the one thing I worry is, is it might suffer a little bit from kind of the Hanabi problem, the thing that you don't like about Hanabi, that there might be a temptation to kind of develop like a shorthand. That the way you get better at it is saying okay, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to look down and say, this is the shape of the tower that I'm on. And then you don't get people just kind of swirling around saying, oh, there's a statue, oh, there's a thing, <laughs> which is what makes it fun. But yeah, it's, it's loads of fun. It's absolutely brilliant. I think that's a valid point. But equally, I think you can help make it harder. You can do stuff like only once you've looked in the phone, you have to go away from the table. You can't come back and comment on the map that's been laid down. Oh, and each person is there, they go. Yeah. Uh, but each person. So when the second person goes, they leave the table. Third person goes, they leave the table. And the first one's got to come back for the last person's clues. And then somehow you all come back together and try and what? What? You got limited time to make it work or I'm something? Sure you I don't know. Yeah, that might be. Yeah, there's different things that you, I can think of with it because it's such an easy light uh, game. The Mask of Maui, by the way, I don't know how many people in Britain own it, but four of us from London on board ordered it. I promptly, from the, within a minute of picking it up, lost it on the tube. But it's been found. Ah, right. <laughs> so I'm about to get it again. And that adds, adds some extra bits with different colour walls and bits of plastic and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so I, I have that heard may it's increase not, the... that it loses some of the, the kind of purity and the fun of the original, that it, it makes things a little bit too gamey. Um, but I'm I might, really interested I have to be to the judge of that myself. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Sean, any thoughts of Mask of Anubis? Uh, still not played it. Still would love to play it. And I can almost guarantee that I would love it. Cool. Thank you. Mask of Anubis, my number three. And... Yes. So <laughs> this is where perhaps we are always inevitably heading. <laughs> my number three is Pax Renaissance by uh, Phil and Matt Eklund, uh, published by Sierra Madre Games. So as I said earlier, huge Sierra Madre fanboy. 
loved all of the PAX games so far. And obviously, PAX Buffariana was a, a real kind of revelation, and that was what then kind of got me playing their other games. I really... It was a revelation in poor graphic design of cards. <laughs> Interesting and different graphic design. Awful and unusable. <laughs> And filled with really interesting <laughs> historical information. Which was confusing. Carry on. <laughs> Any second now, Roland's going to stop interrupting you. I won't. I <laughs> no, won't. No. <laughs> I, I get that the series isn't for everyone. It's really kind of something that you, you kind of have to find people who like those games and kind of explore it together. But I think each new PAX game takes it in a different direction, does something else that's interesting with it. So PAX Premier... I really enjoyed, but I kind of found that it's perhaps it's best with five players. But what it does is, is it has an interesting, it brings in a map-based element, a spatial element, and a kind of proxy power element, where you're not necessarily taking actions for you to win. You're taking actions for a faction to win, and then trying to align yourself with that faction. Pax Renaissance has some similar things to that in that it has the religions but also nation states and so anything that you control kind of sits within two different realms effectively it does make for some complexity when it comes to combat uh, there's a, a chart on the back of the rule book which is probably the most useful thing and it's the one element of the rule book that wasn't designed by an Eklund it was designed by a fan and so it actually makes sense there's a lot of referring to that, because the combat is complicated and, and different each time, but it's just such a rich game, there's so much going on, there's so much to discover. It's just another absolute winner in the uh, in the PAX line. Are the cards better designed than those in PAX by? Well, that depends on your point of view. They're more conventionally designed. <laughs> <laughs> they are definitely cleaner and clearer, yeah. I tried PAX Pro, I'm going to guess, four times or something, and it just didn't. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't get it at all and toppling and what am I even trying to do? I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying to not be broke so I can buy a card. That's all I'm doing. Uh, barrier to entry for Pax Renaissance. Is that. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I think to not know any Pax games, to pick it up and to try and just learn it from the rulebook straight out of the box is hard work. Um, I would almost say, you know, start Pax Porfiriana and, and build up because it does have more complexity, there's more going on. Or have somebody who is already familiar with the games. I was able to pick it up and, and learn it not super easily. You know, I had to kind of read it several times, look at it, play a game, get lots of things wrong. It was at the second game that then we sort of said, OK, now we've got the hang of it. And also other people at the table have read the rule book, And so... The barrier for entry is that you do need to commit a certain amount of time to learning it, to getting to know it, and maybe kind of playing multiple games in order to understand the intricacies of it. But it is incredibly rewarding if you have the time but you, to do you, that. You do realise, though, that you're into this cult so deep, you just practically describe Pax Periferiana as a gateway game. <laughs> practically. Is it not? Maybe um, mm, that's sure, why those people me. never came back to LOB. <laughs> Pax line that the words people say around gaming places, but I have no other knowledge or interest in. Yeah, it's, it's that barrier to entry again. Uh, I'm a bit frightened by them, so I tend to just run away. I, I would very happily teach you both the game so that you can do a game pit special of, of the Pax game. 
I I own Pax Premier, but I've never played it yet. I'm waiting for someone to get five of us together and give it a go. Well, we can definitely mm. do that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's not really what you're waiting for, was it? <laughs> no, I, well, I know. I know he doesn't. He's not interested <laughs> at all. <laughs> okay, so moving on to our number twos, we're nearly there. Oh, Sean. Oh, Sean, Sean, Sean. Are you going to bring my... up a rubbish car game? <laughs> no. I'm going to talk about my number two, Automobiles, from AEG and David Short. Sean's described how to play. You bag build to race. You've got uh, cubes that match gears, that match spaces on the board. The higher gears that you go quicker, but sometimes you get stuck up there and you might need the lighter color, lower gears. There's five very special powers. The different color cubes correspond to cards, which can be mixed up from game to game. You get wear and tear. Brown cubes go in your bag. You draw out. They're useless to you. You are bag building with a clear purpose in this game. There is interaction both on the track and on powers. Adam talked about before, he didn't like it when you couldn't see what people are buying. That's because certain powers, depending upon what people have bought of the cubes, are more or less powerful. Don't go for a long race. Go for a three-lapper tool used to it. And this is an incredibly rewarding, quick game with some depth, with some luck, where you might have to push your luck, where you have to adapt to what powers are in each game and to what your opponents are doing, and I think it's just about perfect for a one-hour racing game. Yeah, so I guess my comments are much the same as above, but I certainly like it. I think it's perhaps a little group-dependent, and it's also, as you say, circumstance-dependent, so depending on how long you make the race. Also, um, what you have is a selection of cards that correspond to, I think, the five different colours of cubes. And so there can be quite a wide variety in those and how they interact with each other. We've certainly found that playing the ones in the rulebook, there are some, some suggested setups. And I think that that is always good for early games because potentially you can get combos that just don't quite work together and can potentially drag the game out. So enjoyable, needs the right circumstances, but certainly good enough. Yeah, OK, well... I'm going to be nice because I'm about to get absolutely torn apart by Ronan in my next game. (laughs) (laughs) I don't despise it. I think playing it in the right circumstances with Ronan and some other people who really know the game can crack on at a decent pace at a short game. Yeah, you know, I'd I'd play it if everybody wanted to play it. Wow, can this be more begrudging? That is mind-boggling that it's your number two for the year. I just don't understand that at all. It just doesn't... When I I look at these games, I'm going to judge them on what they were setting out to do. So I could easily have had a top five of all heavy games because actually they might be the five games that I would choose to play most of the time. If I've got three hours, I'm not going to choose to play three games of automobiles I'm going to choose probably something heavier like a Great Western Trail or a Scythe or something like that right but when judging the best games of the year Mask of Anubis for what it sets out to do is a fantastic game Automobiles is the best deck or bag building game that's come out in quite some time because it does something with a clear purpose it's not themeless and it's over and done with quickly enough mm, okay well we'll have to agree to differ now <laughs> So that was your number two automobiles. Uh, Adam, your number two. So my number two, um, and I think this probably isn't going to be a very controversial one, my number two is Terraforming Mars by Jacob Frixelius. I've never come across his name before. Terraforming Mars, which is a, a, a game where players are competing 
to do the most work in making Mars habitable, in raising the temperature, in, in uh, adding oxygen to the atmosphere, developing cities on the surface and, and placing woodland. So you have this kind of central board where all of that is happening. But really the meat of the game is a card game, is uh, a game of building card combinations, building an engine. It does, and it's not just a theme, it really reminds me of Race for the Galaxy in that you're looking to, to kind of put together the right combinations of things that will just work together, allow you to maybe specialise in certain areas that will fire off of each other when you activate them. And I think it has, again, a, a quite innovative way of managing that, because, of course, with any of those card combo games, there's always a certain amount of luck of the draw. If you get things that fit together, you're on to a winner. If you don't, then, then you're not going to be able to keep up. The way the Terraforming Mars deals with that is that everybody's dealt a certain number of cards at the beginning of a turn, and you choose to pay to keep them. So if you get the perfect hand, if you get everything that fits together, well, that's brilliant, but it's going to cost you, and maybe you haven't got the money to, to put those all together. Or if you draw something that's just no use to you at all, then it means you might have a slightly quiet turn, but you just save your money, and, and you don't buy those cards. So I think that is is handled really well. It just makes for a really enjoyable, really engaging and, and reasonably interactive game with a, a really interesting theme. So, big fan of Terraforming Mars. So this is probably my biggest surprise in my list, the, the fact that this one isn't on it. It was one that, it was probably the first game that sprung to mind when I was thinking, well, okay, 2016 games, what ones made a big splash, what ones I really enjoy. I thought, okay, Terraforming Mars, that's definitely in that list. And then I ended up with the top six. I thought, oh. And I, I started weighing it up against everything I've played, and, and it actually finished sixth. And I was really surprised at that. I thought it would be higher. Having seen the rest of your list, I'm really surprised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can I just chip in? <laughs> <laughs> so, essentially, or the two, the two things that made me sort of, it sort of push it down slightly. I've played it a few times now, and... I don't think I've had a massively different game of it. Yeah, the, you start off at the different companies, and yeah, you go, you might you tack on to certain things and try and unify them and use them together. But I don't think I've had a massively different experience playing the game. Also, the last few times I've played it, some the person that I've played against seems to be putting things together in a lot more logical sense and seems to be doing more on Mars itself and seems to be addressing different things and I've been just picking up point scoring cards and I've won every time I, it just feels to me that they've played the game better and I've won the game so that kind of put me off it slightly and pushed it down my list slightly but it's still a really really strong game that I love playing this is a really strong strong choice Adam it's a fine game <laughs> Sean's a bit mad. Finally, a definite contender. That's that's <laughs> all I have to say. Uh, Sean, following Terraforming Mars, what's your number two? Right. Okay. Let let the let the beating begin. Okay. So, Ronan Ronan alluded to that he was going to point out a framework of a story in which you don't interact, and this was the game he was talking about. <laughs> it's Mansions of Madness Second Editions by Nicky Valens of Fantasy Flight Games. It's a, the game in which there's an app-driven game in which you're following a storyline set in and around a mansion or various other mansion-y type places. 
and you're 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 fighting the Cthulhu naughtiness around you, and that's essentially it. Now, why do I love it? I love the storylines behind it. It's the the app makes it thematic. It makes it easy to play. You can dive straight in. Love that it brings people together for conversation. Yeah, Brennan mentioned in our review of this one that, yeah, it's an experience that he's possibly enjoyed for a few hours, but he doesn't think it's a game. I agree with him that I've enjoyed it, the experience for a couple of hours. I think there's a slight, slightly more game than Ronan does in there. I think you do have choices. You do have to work together. You've got those puzzle elements that you've got to think about, and you have control over the storyline in as much as that, yeah, you can die. You can choose the wrong path. You can do something that's going to affect the way the game reacts and the way the app reacts. I think the app's really clever. And game or no game, I have a great time and a great experience every time I interact with this framework. So that's why it's my number two choice. Yeah, so at Eastbourne, there was a group of people playing um, Manchester's Madness with the app. And I was waiting on some of them to play something else. So for a sort of 20 minutes, I, I kind of stood by the table and I, I watched them play. And so I feel like I have played the game just as much as they have. Because they just sat there and the app told them to move things around and they did. And the app just led them by the nose through the story. It didn't seem like their decisions really made an awful lot of difference to what happened. It definitely doesn't appeal at all to me. I didn't think it would. No. I mean, it's never going to be in my wheelhouse, but even less so than other co-ops. Yeah, no, fair enough. I, I see the point. Uh, maybe it's just that I'm so immersed in, in the storyline. I don't know. But it's, I've always, always have a wonderful time, and mostly the people who, who I've played with have always gone, that was, I really enjoyed my time there. You're not massively, you're not, you're not brain-burning, yeah, but I think you're having a laugh. So, I think if there are a list of forms of entertainment that have entertained me in 2016, this would be more at home there, as opposed to a good game, because you don't have enough agency. Uh, it's definitely not my style of game with regards to that lack of agency. However, I rate it quite highly on Board Game Geek, and actually, if you're asking me for top games of the year, this would be in my top 20, because... It does exactly what it sets out to do. I enjoyed my games of it. And if ever I was in the mood to play through a story while I do almost nothing, but stuff happens around <laughs> me, this is as good as it gets. It, it achieves what it wants to achieve. Do I want to play it a lot? Not really. Are there going to be times when I will play it? For sure, it's happened. I've played it since we reviewed it. I've you know, I've played it for relatively recently. Will I play it again? Yes, I will. Do I enjoy my plays? Plays being the wrong word, but okay, my experience. Yes, I do. So therefore, it is a good game, but it's not a good game for me, and it pushes the limits of game. Fair enough. I, I take on board those comments. Aren't but... you the reason? <laughs> all the abuse that's been. <laughs> that was Mansions about the second edition, and it was my number two choice. Adam, we're on to our number one. What was your? Best game of 2016. Yes, so that brings us to uh, my number one, which is one that I've already mentioned uh, in this episode. Uh, it is Capital Lux by Elif Svensson and Christian Amundsen Oatesby. So it's not a heavy game. It wasn't a, a huge release. It is very much a small box card game. It's, it's quite a, a short game. 
But of everything that came out in 2016, this is certainly the one that I've played the most, and it's just the one that I've got the most enjoyment from. I really, really enjoy this game. It's The notion is that there are four factions, there are four suits of cards, uh, which are have multiple copies of values from two to six. At the beginning of each hand, you're dealt a certain number, and there's a small draft where you pass half your hand, and then you pass two more, just to kind of Established hand, but also it allows you to get more of a notion of what's in play that turn, of what hand, what cards are available. So then you're looking for them, you're remembering them. And what you're looking to do is play the cards into your city, a tableau in front of you. And you're looking to have the highest possible score of cards, the highest possible value, but that isn't higher than the value of cards in the capital, which is a tableau that you play to in the middle. And when you play cards into that tableau, you also gain some small bonus actions one of which is to add face-down cards, which can add or, or um, subtract from the values of that capital. So there's a lot of bluff. There's a lot of, of counting and remembering and, and trying to work out what people are interested in and where they're going. You're really playing the other players. So it's it's interactive in, in the... In the silent sense, I suppose. This is maybe what I'm looking for in a game, is that I'm interacting with people, but we don't have to talk. You're you're trying to hide things from each other, you're trying to get a sense of what each other's trying to do. It is, as I said, very beautifully presented, um, lovely artwork, but, but mainly just a really interesting and engaging game. It was one of the games that I knew I was interested in when I went to Essen this year. Um, I kind of had a, a list of a few small box card games that were very expensive, and I thought, well, I'll just go around and I'll pick these up, and hopefully they'll be good. Also on the list was uh, Kanagawa and Honshu, both of which are considerably higher ranked on BoardGameGeek than Capital Lux is, and I think that's entirely unfair. Um, I think Capital Lux was, for that kind of weight of a, a filler, a kind of fairly simple, small component um, game, Capital Lux is absolutely superb. Myself and Natalie thoroughly enjoyed the games we played at this with you, Dan and Eastbourne, Adam. And uh, it's very much on our shopping list. We we will own it, I'm sure, very soon. Natalie was particularly enamoured of it. And, yeah, I said in our mini-review of it that I don't really know how I would get better at it, but that says more about me than the game. And, yeah, yeah, I would always be happy to play this one. Yeah, Capital Lux, it is good. I enjoyed my games of it. But, ultimately, it's just another very good card game. Uh, I think you had to go at Sean about, or not go, you asked him if size didn't look as pretty, would he rate it as highly? Capital I, Lux I didn't look as pretty, would you rate this one as highly? Mm, that's something for you to ponder. I, I'll always be happy to play a game of it. Been drawn to it. I don't know that I would have picked it up. But it is right. essentially an abstract card game. So that looks pretty. Jump, so if it was uh, photos of myself and Sean on there, would you play it as much? Absolutely, all the more so, I'm sure. <laughs> While retching. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you, Adam. So my number one for 2016, you may have picked up on the clues throughout the episode, is Terraforming Mars. Not the most original choice, I know. However, true for me. From Frixel Stronghold Games, and as Adam just said, designed by Jacob Frixelius. You've just heard him. You've got the whole idea of how it plays. I'll just throw some other things in there. It's fantastic the way it scales. So it works. I haven't played solo. I can't come with solo, but two to five, it works at all levels. 
thing we're talking about at the beginning of the episode, which I'll come back to, is engine building, then engine delivering, and then the game finishing. So you get your engine building in the beginning of the game, and that's where you've got to get your production cards. Then your engine delivers, because it takes a while to get going. Once you've got a good engine, you'll be putting down plants and cities and oceans, and you're heating, and it will all happen once you have that one going. Now, Sean was talking about scoring points, because there's a point in the game in which you stop taking those engine building cards. You stop creating combos. You stop getting the things to give you money off this and money off that. And you start turning that all into points. And that's just part of learning the game and playing it. It's the fact that, do you know what? This card that only costs six and will give me money off for the rest of the game is pointless. I need to spend 18 just to get some things down on the board. Just to go over some prizes. Because that's where the points actually are in the game. But when the engine then starts to deliver... The game doesn't outstay its welcome. You're not stuck in a rut for too long because there are those three things you've got to get done. And once they're done, the game is going to finish. Have to disagree with Sean. Every game I've played has been different to some degree, some wildly so with lots of money available, some very tight, somewhere all the oceans have gone after a few rounds, somewhere the oceans are the last to go on. It mixes, it matches, depends what cards come out, depends how players play, depends what corporations are in play, and they all tend for me to play out in a different style. Obviously, I think it's a brilliant game. It's my number one for the year. I will say you must draft, otherwise it does become too lucky, and people can get a good draw at the beginning of the game and then absolutely destroy you. Tom Preston. Also, Adam said that it's good because if you get a good hand of cards, you have to pay for them. I've said it before, I'll keep banging it. When you play with drafting, if you want to keep a card, you must pay then and there for that card. There's no negative drafting in my version of the game because it's too easy to do and that's how the game can stall. But Terraforming Mars, fantastic. Sean, I cannot believe it's not in your top five. Genuinely. I'm actually quite sort of shocked myself and I was quite shocked. I think basically from three to six were interchangeable. Well, literally, they they change so often, and Terraformer Mars was generally in there, and I just and and somehow you end up getting it wrong in the end. <laughs> I did, got it wrong, horribly wrong. Uh, the only thing I've really got to add, Ronan, is the I I think the price point that the new games are coming out is a bit steep for the actual components you get in the box. Uh, kind of when you when you're charging six, I still defend those components. I yeah, still think they're not about them. They're still, I still defend them. They're not £65 worth of components. I never said that. But £65 <laughs> worth of game. Oh, there you go. There you not go. Well. Straight in. Well, 165 after you sleeve it and you buy the e-rest organisers. And <laughs> <laughs> My man Adam just said it for me. £65 worth of game. I mean, you know I've played it so many times and it still yeah. keeps coming out people still keep requesting it and it's not that bad to teach given how many different cards are in there and it's just it's a huge hit for a reason yeah it's a very good win. game and last up is going to be my number one it's Star Wars Rebellion from Cory Konichka from Fantasy Flight Games it's essentially Star Wars in a box it's the game that I think most sort of makes me think about the Star Wars films and what they meant to me growing up I think a very interesting cat and mouse chase. Very good 
battle sequences. You can make your own stories within it. Maybe you turn Luke to the dark side. I don't know. You, you capture Han Solo. I don't know. It's very, very, very good game. The only thing that made me slightly wobble about making it my number one is I've only played it two or three times. And it's a massive investment in time. But the thing that turned me back around was that I had a, I can't remember, it was a five or a six hour game of this. And I still came out thinking I want to play that again. I think that speaks volumes. So I uh, I haven't played this, and I've I've had a couple of, of times when it was on offer. There was potentially the opportunity to maybe at Eastbourne, and it's always just that length that puts me off. The the kind of I, I'm happy with three four hours, but such an epic game doesn't. I don't know. I think I'd have to be fairly well convinced before I sat down to it to want to play it. So, having not played it, just to kind of offer a bit of a counterpoint, I did look up some negative reviews on BoardGameGeek. Obviously, the few negative reviews there are just get absolutely bundled on in the comments with people telling them why they're wrong about everything. Clearly, the the majority opinion is that this is awesome. But the the things that people have found that that, um, they've suggested are negative are the length. But also, people who have played it quite a number of times said that it feels quite scripted, that each side essentially has a thing that they need to do in order to win, that there's just a particular process that they'll go through. And the specifics, the cards will be different, but that that there is a particular way that you have to play a faction, and that particularly that can be less fun for the Rebel player, that that just becomes a bit of a grind of just trying to hide, trying to play negative for the entire game. So how would you respond to any of that? Okay, so the length of the game, I think it can definitely be brought down. I think it can be brought down to the sort of three-hour mark. I played a two-player game with Natalie, and we had it around two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour mark. So it definitely can be brought down. The fact, the reason it went so long at Eastbourne is because we were all getting so deep into it, and we were having little conferences, and there was there was timeouts, and people saying, right, can you go away because we need to chat, and stuff like that. So that's the – which is cool – and we were all invested in it, and we, that's what we decided to do. Definitely take a big chunk of that time off. Now, yeah, the game is scripted. Like you have what you have a specific way of winning as the rebels. You have a specific way of winning as the imperial forces. So, yeah, that does make sense. It's whether you you buy into that or not. That's the way the Star Wars films are. The, the Imperials are trying to find the base and the, the, the Rebels are trying to hide from the Imperials. It's the way the films go. So you either want it thematic or you don't. I'm I'm happy with it being thematic and I'm happy the way that the rules play out and how the wind conditions play out. Okay, this to me was another one of my number five to number ten, much as your three to six. They were all interchangeable. It, it's got so much in there that, to me, I need to sit down and play it a dozen times with other experienced partners to explore the whole space to see what's really there because it's quite overwhelming. There's no way you're going to get to know all the missions and all the cards and how the combat works and what the best strategies are. Does it end up being scripted? I can't comment on that. I haven't played often enough. That's maybe something to come back to further down the line. We talked about there being an expansion coming. Maybe we'll review it later on with a few more plays and talk about that expansion. It's another one with potential to rise with more plays under my belt and I'd love to play it with people who understand both sides. And Adam, with regards to being convinced, I mean, there's definitely a game there. I I think that if you're not convinced on the premise, 
there's really nothing else to convince you. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just the length of time means that I would have to have a, a pretty good idea. That's, but I've, I've really, from people I know who've played it, I've not heard anything negative. So I would definitely be up for giving it a go, I think, if I had the time. Cool, cool. And yeah, I, I think under four hours for the first game is definitely, definitely doable. The boys there went for an experience as opposed to sort of getting the game played, if you like. And that was my number one Star Wars Rebellion. And we finally got there, guys. We will see you in the outro, hopefully. Wow. That is 2016 thoroughly dissected, divvied up for you, split into what's hot and what is not. We hope that you enjoyed it agreed with some of the things we said probably disagreed with quite a lot of things we said thank you very much for listening sean thank you very much thank you ronan and thank you adam uh, thank you for having me it's been a lot of fun we've, we've certainly enjoyed it well, although I'm, I'm sad that i i didn't get to say that anything was a trap or a treasure oh, oh we well one of those is coming up you if are, you want to join us you are both let treasures. me tell you that is, uh, tra- the treasure hunt ones are the most work for the shortest episodes <laughs> that we do. I'm not sure you want to be jumping on board. Yeah, that. And, <laughs> and the most abuse that we get. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, true. We've started uh, emailing publishers already to get some info on upcoming games. So there will be a summer treasure hunt coming up. I bet you're excited, Adam, aren't you? Okay, you can sit wait. at home and play a little game yourself and guess whether we're going to say trap or treasure for each game i always do i'll, I'll be refreshing my podcast feed hourly <laughs> god bless you i told you i was worried about him sure <laughs> oh god bless him okay, what, what else uh, have we got coming up Ronan? we've got a picking over the bones coming up yes with this we've war got, of mine uh, including this one mine we've got a treasure hunt coming up we have got the finalization of our top 50 games ever we've still got two more episodes of that to do and undoubtedly other memorable things indeed so thank you all for listening and as always we are very proud members of the dice tower network go there and to the dice tower itself for gaming goodness galore if you wish to email us we're on the game pit podcast at gmail.com if you just simply wish to chat about a range of subjects, we have a Board Game Geek Guild. Come and find us there. On social media, we're on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast. We have a Facebook page, and we're also on Instagram. If you wish to download the episodes, we're on Stitcher, iTunes, and, of course, Podbean. Thank you very much for listening. Music by E. Aaron. <laughs>